what we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? I'll put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host and voiceover artist here in San Diego, California, an avid fan of heavy metal rock. <laughs> and after, after what seemed like months, years, eons yeah. of exploring the Difficult, fascinating, exciting, thrilling, violent, and occasionally upsetting world of Quentin Tarantino. We have escaped. <laughs> it, we got as far as we possibly can away from that. Yeah. And I don't think we could have ever conceived of going on this journey without our very special guest, one of our favorite people, a friend of the show, animation executive and producer, Michael Ross. Yeah. Hey. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. I never, I never thought I would have to. Um follow quentin tarantino but that but this is good this is the low low expectations i guess no, not at all i think I, I look i think there's going to be in the history books there will be essays phd doctoral dissertations written on the comparison between quentin tarantino and michael ross oh oh good <laughs> that's great our anger mostly our anger issues or what yes 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 Got all it. sorts of things your senses of humor your anger issues the yes. uh, the propensity to violence and racial slurs, all of that stuff. <laughs> well, um, I, have, I, mean, I, I wanted to start today because you know yeah. the big thing right now is uh, is is AI and bots, oh, Chat God. GPT. I've been using it a lot to write all of my scripts, and I actually asked <laughs> Chat, I actually asked Chat GPT. I said, "I'm gonna." It's been a little while since I've been on the show. I'm, I'm a little nervous. John and Steve are they're becoming more popular. I knew them when, but they're becoming more popular. I need help writing uh, something to break the ice. So ChatGPT wrote me this. Mm. It said, start with a joke. Why did the movie theater stop selling nachos? I don't know why. why? Because they are making too much noise during the quiet parts of the film. It's a lighthearted joke that relates to the movie. <laughs> and, and, might, and might get a chuckle from John and Steve. Good luck on your podcast appearance, Michael. <laughs> that's really great <laughs> you know so so what you don't know mike is that we just released an epic conversation on how terrified we are on ai yes on our patreon page it was 50 minutes the conversation about it you yeah. but is this proof you don't have to be terrified anymore no that you, that was what i was just gonna say that that joke wasn't that funny and that made me feel so much better <laughs> That makes me feel worse because it didn't do what it was intended to do was to create a funny joke and therefore went in its own direction. And now we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I should say that we have, as I'm always prone to do, buried the lead. We have not mentioned what the show is. And if so, if you don't look at the actual title of the show and this is just playing on a playlist, you don't know that the movie that we are about to do a deep dive in is 1984 Rob Reiner seminal classic genre creating film spinal tap yeah yeah can, can, can <laughs> i ask michael ross how did you first come to spinal tap 
So I, I kept thinking back because it's it it's hard when you, especially movies from the eighties. I was born in seventy eight, and mm. it, it feels like even when this came out in eighty four, like that I saw it when it first came out. But that's not the truth because I was six. I think I was probably <laughs> a, right. Is that right math? I, I think, think so. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, yes, that is the right yeah. math. <laughs> I, I want to say I was around twelve years old when I first saw it. VHS. Oh wow! And I remember it was so funny because it's like. I hated, I hated, like, I was Journey, Chicago, Sticks, mm. musical theater. <laughs> like, so I hated the music. And I, I hated it so much that it was hard to hear, like, the the funny things with it. But I, I loved the movie so much because it was just, like, nothing like this existed. These people just, it like, it, it seemed so real that it was it was hard for me to realize at 12, like, is is it? Are they a real group? Is this, mm. and then as I came to find out, because again, you didn't have like DVD extras back then. Came to find out what they did, and man, it set me on uh, that. It it creating that genre. It created a world for me that I never knew existed in film. I really think I associate you with this so much, Mike, because like your sense of humor and your desire to create. There have been so, so just to let you in on a little slice of what people don't know about our friendship, there have been from the time I met you, these events that you created, like uh what what was the award show? It was the Flemmies. The Flemmies yeah. award show, there was Spy the Game, there was all of these things where it was like one long improv that we engaged with you on. Yeah, I mean and it and it helped being surrounded by a bunch of theater people that are like, you know, again, friends I've had forever that are just Yes, ending, and that's that's what I think so great about this film is just like the give and take. Like Christopher Guest is so for like he's so for it. He's got all the jokes. He's he's got literally everything, every simple moment. But then when you watch interviews with him or watch him at the Academy Awards this year, he's like he's like people talk over him. He gets talked over. He he barely has a chance to like, and it's almost like he doesn't want to either. I've heard that about his personality, right? But in those films, he's just. He's like the shine, this this unbelievable shining light, and it's it's through their friends and the friends being able to play along with that improv. I just I love. Yeah, yeah. John, how'd you first come to Spinal Tap? You know, I have a very complicated history with this movie, to be honest with you, because I at the time when this film came out, and I was of uh, higher age than Ross when this film <laughs> came out, and um, I resisted the film because I had a friend who I grew up with who was big into heavy metal, and he. I would go to his house in this in Virginia and we would sit in his uh, bedroom and listen and put on Iron Maiden and Metal Church and all this stuff that I was just not into at the time, you know, because I was like, hey, you got any Neil Diamond, any soft rock? It wasn't until later in my teens that I got into like Van Halen and Def Leppard and all this kind of shit and found my way back around. I never fully went into the Iron Maiden Judas Priest section necessarily, but I certainly enjoyed some of the metal and heavy metal that i that i and especially the hair metal that i got into there in the 80s so when i saw this film i was much older i was in like in my 20s and i rented it and i was like eh, this is okay it wasn't that good were you with tell you when you were when you rented it were you alone or were you with yeah I was, I was alone i was by yeah. myself watching it um but i will say this watching it this time around as an older person having been through the wars creatively with people, having been through productions, been on shows, done stuff like the podcasts, all these kinds of things, it completely came alive for me this way, this time around 
in a way that has never come around, uh, come alive for me before. And I understand now, finally, at this advanced age, why people love this movie as much as they do. I was laughing at everything. And in fact, when it ended, I was like, wait, what? This is only an hour and 20 some minutes? What? So I just was just blown away this time around. And that's why I'm even more excited to talk about the film because I had trepidation going into it. Hadn't seen it in a number of years. And seeing it this time around, I got everything that they were joking about and the nuance of it all. It was so much fun. man. So, well, and and fortunately for you, John, there's like five hours of outtakes of them. Are there really? Oh, Oh, my God. You got to You got to watch the four hour cut. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What I'll say, I I watched some of the it's like I didn't watch all of it. I was watching some of it. And what's so funny is like we've had this conversation. I promise I'll answer my own question in a moment. But but we we've had this conversation many times where in general, John, you always want to see, you know, a movie you love. You're like, give me all of it. I want to see all the scenes. Yeah, and I'm yeah, always as to think like an editor going, no, no, if it, they cut it out, they cut it out for a reason. And you probably, you know, I wouldn't want to see it. And in most of like a lot of the director's cuts and stuff like that, we've seen that's been the case where it's kind of like, yeah, th- this was out for a reason. What's weird about Spinal Tap and watching the outtake, it's just like the movie. Mm. It's, it's all, the, it, it's as the stuff it's, they, they, chose to tell a specific kind of story but it's not like all the they're not great improvisers for the other three hours you know yeah yeah yeah. yeah. they're still great so so here's how i came to the film and i actually have a a question for our younger viewers which is it used to be that humans like high school and college students would like get together in the same place and do the same thing Mm. and frequently there would be like a stack of vhs tapes that would be rented when you're in high school and those would be playing in the background and i'm wondering like because everybody has their own phones everyone has youtube everyone has all their own social media and stuff does that happen like do you go to the person's house and have five movies playing all day in the background ross is shaking his head no i can't imagine no yeah. No, these kids today? No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I said some asperity in your voice the way you said that. But Steve, no, it doesn't. And, the, and I don't want to get too far off topic of it either. Mm-hmm. But it, it also, like, it started reawakening, like, the, 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 the pinnacle of DVDs and DVD extras. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first DVDs that I owned. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go off a little bit here but for a second. But it's literally my favorite thing. It, the start screen. So the the, the title comes up. It goes mm. spinal tap. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's too big. I, that's too big. Can we make it smaller? Can we make it smaller? And literally for ten minutes, it's just them complaining about the title screen before you even press play to start the movie. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Like the art of that and the patience yeah. for that anymore doesn't happen. So this has to be. It's a movie that has to be like passed on. I think at this point, which is unfortunate. Well, and this is why I asked you the question, John, of if you saw it with people or saw it alone, because Mm. time and place for certain movies make a huge difference, and particularly for comedies. And particular, I mean, if I had watched Spinal Tap alone, I would have, I wouldn't have gotten it at all. Mm. I would have just gone, yeah, what is this? But the way I saw it was in high school. Some it was at someone's house, and someone had put it in, and I wandered into the room, and I was watching, and I remember I had no context for it whatsoever. I was like, what is this? And I remember the moment as I'm watching that I went, Lenny? Is that Lenny? Right. Because Michael, because I grew up with Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, and Michael McKean is Lenny and Squiggy. And I just like, and I remember having, and people are laughing and and, and quoting it because people had seen the movie many times and I hadn't. And I'm like, what 
what the fuck is happening here? And it took me a while to get, oh, this is a joke. Yeah. Well, and it's also because like each of you mentioned the kind of music that you're into, the kind of music that I was into in high school was oldies, was I mm. love. I love, the, I listen to the oldie stations. And so like when they're doing, give me some money. And when they're doing, <laughs> listen to the, what the flower, I mean, like that was like, it's so sunk into what my sense of music history. And I just, and I remember, and then, but then I also got distracted. So I didn't see the whole thing. And so this was a movie that I saw in pieces multiple times yeah. before I actually sat down and to just focus on and watch the movie. And I also had the same experience as you did, John, watching it this time. There were so many little nuances. That I mean, hit. dude, it was great. And and the thing is, um, I was watching it. Uh, it's on TCM. So if anybody wants to watch it and they have TCM, you can watch it streaming on TCM. Mankiewicz does an intro and an outro for it. Mm. And he reveals in the outro that apparently there is a sequel in the works with Rob yeah. Reiner directing it. Yeah, uh, I suppose they started in May 2022 talking about it. And so we'll see if they come out. They still occasionally get together. Uh, and I think another element of this, it's really interesting for us talking about the movie right now, right after the Peter Jackson um, uh, Get Back documentary about the Beatles, it adds even more. It had I had even more to kind of yeah. uh, context to dive into when I was watching it this time around, which I thought was great. So, yeah, good timing. And I will say, I said it before, I'm going to say it again. I'll probably say it multiple times in this. Mm. To say that this invented a genre right. is an understatement. Because yeah. it's not just that all the Christopher Guest movies come from this. It's not just that, like, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm and all that stuff doesn't exist with all this. Right. It's also all of the mockumentary-style television, The Office, all of that stuff, Parks and Rec, all of that stuff has origins in Spinal Tap. And 90% of it, I love doesn't it yeah. fails in comparison i mean like i think the worst thing about improv television is when you when you're like it's this isn't it's is an improv like right point, johnny that you just made which was like or steve like walking in and going is this am i watching reality right now yeah because like, they, they also talk about like when they would show up for shows like dress the smile tap nobody would know it's christopher guests it's like really <laughs> like really but like it's that like that believable and it's it's just it's so hard to do and when it's bad it's it's really bad yeah. i think that's why documentary now which is literally the grandchild of this thing uh can work sometimes and not work sometimes it always oh, yeah. depends on what they're profiling like their 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 version of the company documentary is maybe my favorite one they've ever done but like yes. they, 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 because they lean into the fact that it's very natural and it's hard to capture the natural gift that uh, is in the, in Spinal Tap in, in those other shows or or mockumentary movies because yeah watching it this time again I'm like they're so natural it really feels like you're just kind of happened to uncomfortably be there when all of this is going down and I think the gift was also surrounding them with people that are not that well known at the time or not that well known now even uh, to add to the reality of it so you can even enjoy it now in 2023 as something that feels very realistic. So I have, I have some pre-production. Oh, yeah. um, Michael McKean and Christopher Guest, they met in New York City in the late 60s. They played music together. Christopher Guest had gone to the New York High School of Music and Art. And yeah. so he had studied classical music. He'd studied the mandolin, which comes up in the film. He played, I mean, he played guitar with Arlo Guthrie. Like they were in or adjacent to the late 60s music scene, you know? Hmm. 
and each of them are sort of becoming important comedically. Obviously, Michael McKean gets cast as Lenny um, in uh, Laverne and Shirley. They're involved in the National Lampoon. That's the first time that uh, Christopher Guest uses the name Nigel is on a National Lampoon album. It's the mm -hmm. Lenny and Squiggly album. And then they worked with Rob Reiner and Harry Shearer in the 1978 comedy sketch show called The TV Show. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I watched any of this. I don't think I did. I definitely didn't. Uh, I, I well, you you don't know what your what your parents put you in front of when you were a baby. <laughs> but that, but I, I, because I remember an interview from this from a while ago. Maybe on the DVD, I could finally get. But like, it started out as a sketch, right? Yeah. They, mm. That they that they had written, and suppose like there's supposed to be a fog machine thing that happened at the end, but the fog machine was not filled the right way, so hot oil was like scalding them from like at the end of the sketch which wound up turning into like just the the insanity of this band that is trying to be you know uh uh have its mark and just keeps getting disrespected as you know as they continue their journey well and, and what happened i think was it was supposed it was a song they were doing a song they they written for the band spinal i think they had the name spinal tap at that point they did during the tv show yeah but then as the hot oil is dripping on them and the prop guy is like trying to figure out how to fix it. They basically were like, we could either just get angry or start improvising. So they're lying on the ground, having hot oil dripping on them. And then they just started talking. And these characters, it sounds like with Chris guest and Michael McKean just came out fully formed. And suddenly everyone is standing around them in hysterics as they just keep talking as these characters. Yeah. Brilliant. So they say, hey, let's make a movie out of this. And they get, I, I saw different numbers. I saw 10 grand. I saw 20 grand. At one point, I saw 60 grand. Hmm. I'm not sure what it was, but this was seed money to write a script. So they sit down to write a script. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner, Michael McKean, and Christopher Guest. And they get nowhere. They can't get anywhere. But they're still improvising with each other on this thing. And then they finally went, well, let's just shoot some stuff. So they take their money that they got and they shot 20 minutes of a demo, many of which, many of the scenes are actually in the film. Mm. And so they have this 20 minute demo and they take it to one producer after another. They say, we want to make this movie out of improv. And everyone's just like, no, no, this doesn't, it's not funny. It doesn't make sense. You can't make a movie out of improv. And finally, it sounds like the one person Rob Reiner didn't really want to go to is his boss on All in the Family is Norman Lear. Mm. But everyone else has said no. So he goes to Norman Lear. And this is my understanding. Norman Lear, one of the great heroes in my Still opinion. around. It's still 101, I think. And he looks at it and basically says, look, I don't really understand this, but I trust you guys. Let's make this movie. Wow. Wow. I mean, that was the guy knows. Hollywood, anyone said, I trust you. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. That was it. Yep. Uh, that's the, And it's, you know, it's a couple million dollars that Norman Lear puts out to get this movie made. I'll just write a sitcom. I'll just write a new yeah. sitcom. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, and I, I think everyone listening knows this, but I think we have to state very clearly, there really isn't a script. Every line that is said is improvised by the actors, but they did, they had outlines for the scene. Those like, here's the information that you need to know. And this is sort of where the scene's going. And that's it. And that is so much pressure mm. on these actors, many of whom are unknown and to deliver what they needed to deliver. Yeah. By the way, did you do either of you have you guys watch some of the classic like rock documentaries like Last Waltz and Don't Look Back and Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because those are now coming out on Criterion as well. So they're they're much more cleaner and they're fun to watch and they've got great 
behind the scenes stuff. But there's that one. What's the decline of Western civilization? There was that one, and oh, I haven't seen that. There, there, there's one that is set in the parking lot of a heavy metal concert, and she is just like, it's. A, I think it's a female director, a documentary director, going around and just interviewing all these young kids. And I think that's what they were using as kind of a bit of a basis mm-hmm. for some of those interviews with the kids that you see, or the teenagers or twenty yeah, year olds that you see. In those the were real interviews, weren't they? Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. I wonder yeah, if they yeah, yeah, yeah. took some of that. Yeah. Yes. Um, that that's it's so interesting because those there's some great documentaries and a lot of them like like Gimme Shelter's one. Oh yeah, where they just sits back and you just kind of watch this thing unfold. And it's a weird documentary that I had never seen it until maybe two years ago. And when I finally watched it, I was like, oh, it hits you so hard in the end. Yeah. And watching that makes watching Spinal Tap better, I think. Mm. Um, the DP that they hired is Peter Smoker, who is a was a documentarian. And what it sounds like is in terms of his skills with the camera, like he knew when to pan over and what to see. The only thing it sounds like he didn't have was a sense of humor. He didn't. He's like, I don't understand why this is funny, but I'm filming, doing a good job filming this documentary. Amazing. Speaking of which, shall we get into this film? Let's do it. So I I, I know I've said before, comedy is always hard because I want to say every line and I'm definitely not going to do that here. I don't even know how to go about it because so much of this is like, they say everything totally straight and it's so in the reaction shots or the awkwardness. So I don't know how I'm going to describe it, but what, you know, we're going to do our best, but the person that we start with was, is Marty DeBerge. Hello, my name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. I make a lot of commercials. I didn't know where his name came from. Oh, his what? name, Martin DeBerge is a tribute to Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, and either Antonioni or Fellini. <laughs> Marty De Berg E. <laughs> and it sounds like something totally made like that he would have done to you know, like made up himself too. Yeah, right. The director himself. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that in addition to being the director and everyone who's listened to the show knows my deep love of Rob Reiner as a director, I think his reaction shots, the unsung hero of this movie. He's the unsung hero of the movie, period. The amount of set, they know, you can hear in interviews, they talk about it, he sets them up for success for almost every single one of the jokes in this film. He's so good. And I love, because this opening, which is him introducing himself, brags about his commercials <laughs> and he's standing it's such a perfect bad idea that you think is a good idea of a setup of like well i'm making a movie and i'm doing my interest so we should have lights and movie things and then guitars and amps and music things that are in positions for no reason whatsoever except like put them here for this shot so i look cool yeah. I'm going to throw this out there, and some of y'all might think I'm crazy, but I liken it to this time around watching it, right? I liken it to the opening of Henry V with Derek Jacobi walking in and yes. essentially laying the groundwork, yes, right? Or the beginning of Romeo and Juliet when he comes out and says, Two households, both alike in Fair Verona, essentially laying the scene and giving you the vibe of what you're going to get. This guy does the same thing as Derek Jacobi does at the beginning of Henry V, walking through the sets that are not lived in yet and just talking about what he's going to do, what you're going to see, what this is all about. So even within the comedy, and great comedy has incredible intelligence behind it and very literary intelligence behind it, I would not be surprised if this was a little bit 
inspired by some Shakespeare stuff at the beginning. In 1966, I went down to Greenwich Village, New York City, to a rock club called the Electric Banana. <laughs> it's already, it's already funny. Listen, it's not there anymore. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> but that night, I heard a band that, for me, redefined the word rock and roll. I remember being knocked out by their, their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. <laughs> so, Michael Ross, can you explain that joke to me? Because <laughs> that is fucking funny, but I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> you delivered that really well, Steve. <laughs> it's... Be, be, <laughs> You, look, it's comedy in three. You mentioned three things, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, comedy in threes. First, first, say it again. I remember being knocked out by their, their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> and it, but it's something. It's something that for him as a director, he was probably like, "It's great," and they were on time. Like they were, they were on time, so they didn't have to worry about that either. You know, it's just, it's like he had nothing. He had to think of three things. That was the best third compliment he could give them. Well, what I, what I love too is that punctuality, by definition, kind of has to come first. Like you can't be knocked out by someone's punctuality last because they showed up on time. Well, what's so funny too, and this is I I, I I wanted to focus on this joke because this is like the whole movie to me. Yeah, which is you hear him say the thing, and it sounds perfectly normal, and then like a moment later, you go, Wait, "What? What did he say? What?" Yeah. But by that point, you're already on to another thing, right. you know? That's what's great about all all these films, right? Is that you, and I think why it'd be hard for somebody that's never seen these before, if you were on your phone, if you were doing something else, oh, yeah. if you weren't doing anything but paying attention to this film, then you are, you, you'll be stupid going through it. You, 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 you just, you'll be an idiot going through it. You, you've got to be paying attention to every single moment. You'll miss the small moments that are going to make you double over in laughter right. as you catch it. And right, the punctuality is perfect because what are rock bands known for? Not being three hours late to a gig or two hours late before they walk out on stage or whatever. Right. So what they're laying the groundwork again for how they are not actually a from beginning full heavy metal kind of band. And we'll see going forward, um, you know, what they start out as and what they turn into and what they become. But the fact that they're punctual means that still element of them is existing in them, and that's why they haven't—they've never fully gotten over as a heavy as a heavy metal band. And we're going to see that throughout the whole movie. Well, and the other thing about them is, I I could totally compare them to Python in this sense, which mm. is that Python are brilliant scholars who, when they did Life of Brian or when they did the Holy Grail, they yeah, did right. like real research and yeah. really are referencing real stuff. There is so much love for the history of rock and roll in this movie. You know, wh yeah. whether it's like like looking at early Bee Gees and seeing where the Bee Gees evolved to or early Bowie or there are all these bands that were actually around in the late 60s and then evolved through the 70s and went through all these stages. And of course, yeah. which we'll get into is all the references to dying drummers and all, you know, all of that stuff. 37, 37 band members at one time. Yeah, was, yeah 37. That band was Britain's now legendary Spinal Tap. 17 years and 15 albums later, Spinal Tap is still going strong. And they've earned a distinguished place in rock history as one of England's loudest bands. <laughs> Does Marty DeBerge like Spinal Tap? 
Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I really don't know. It's like you've got your A, B, C, and D list, right? You know where your talent is in terms of like you've directed commercials. You're going to kind of chase after the ones you know you can get. He knows he can get them. Yeah, I think he had this great idea that he was going to do Zeppelin or he was going to do, yeah, yeah. you know, and that fell through. And then another one fell through and he ended up with Spinal Tap. <laughs> and he's oh. just like, oh, no, I think it was more like he pitched them uh, yes. like this. Dude, and they were like, no, no, we're going to go with a better director. And so the best he could get coming out of commercials was Spinal Tap. I think that's what happened to DeBerge. We, we get what the setup is, which is that they're having their first tour in U.S. tour in six years and that he jumped at the chat chance to make a documentary and then and i love to i wanted to capture the the sights the sounds the smells of a hard-working rock band on the road and i got that but i got more a lot more and then the classic line but hey enough of my yakking <laughs> what do you say let's boogie <laughs> so funny apparently it's like the just the ego god the the and that's and again he that's why he fits perfect with these guys too is they're just and i think in all all the christopher guest movies in the office and all these things it's like there's a reason people want to be filmed there's a reason for their their own they they have to be so self-centered and so egotistical no matter who you are and that's got to shine through and i think that's what we laugh the most at apparently a whole bunch of executives when they saw the first cut said, can you please do something where you like wink at the camera? Like at the <laughs> beginning of the movie airplane where there, there's like the jaws moment where the fin comes through the cloud. Cause they're like, we're really worried. People aren't going to know this is a comedy. Like you need to tell people it's a comedy so they can know to laugh. And their response was like, look, if they don't get it, we can't make them get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so we, we go to titles. Um, <laughs> And we have our first shots of the band and, and roadies and the giant skull. And we see Bruno Kirby for the first time. Oh, God. And we go into uh, their first song. One of my favorite things, Michael McKean is singing. And I love that they show the, the titles. And it says, David St. Hubbins, lead guitar. Nigel Tufnell, lead guitar. <laughs> That's a fantastic rock and roll joke. <laughs> it tells you so much about this band. So true. And can we t- just take like a moment to respect the mustache of Derek Smalls? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean well, that is. That's commitment. And the outfits too. With Harry Shearer too. Just how his body in the whole movie is just so <laughs> just weird. And yes, of course, the mustache, of course. It's funny to think that Harry Shearer, I am assuming, is 10 times richer than anybody else who's in this movie. Okay. <laughs> probably, probably. I mean, and, well, is one, and is the one that led the lawsuit, which I'm sure we will get to later oh, yeah. on as well. It's like, how much more money do you need, brother? <laughs> um, and they finish their song in a classic heavy metal, tongues out sort of way, cheers of the crowd. And then we cut to this interview footage where I think it's in front of like a, a castle and, you know, that's like, I think they shot it in Altadena. All this is shot in LA, by the way. All the things about Cleveland and, you know, Pittsburgh and, you know, it's, it's all shot around LA. I understand, Nigel, you and David originally started the band uh, back in, when was it, 1964? 
And this is the first time we really hear them talking. And it's like a master class. Well, before that, we were in different groups. I was in a group called The Creatures, which was a skiffle group. I was in Lovely Lads. Yeah. And then we looked at each other and said, so well, that, we might as not? well join up, you know. And uh, so we became uh, the originals. Uh, John, I'm sure you think about, you know, John and Paul meeting in oh, the late course. 50s, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I think the joke is the lead guitar, lead guitar, because both yeah. those guys thought they led the Beatles. You know, John yeah. was always adamant that I led the Beatles. I asked Paul to be in the band. But Paul has always felt like, I think, secretly behind the scenes that he was the leader. And certainly was the leader when everything was falling apart over the last two to three albums. So, yeah, that's why I like the shades of the Beatles stuff that are here throughout. I mean, those black and white pictures of them as kids are just genius. And then that first song. And that's another thing we should take a moment before we get too deep. All love to Christopher Guest and Michael McKean and Harry Shearer, who all worked on the songs, created the songs, composed the songs. I'm telling you, there is an incredible amount of genius in Christopher Guest to doing this. The soundtrack was like a best selling soundtrack because those songs that he created from scratch were great. The folk songs he creates for A Mighty Wind are equally good for oh, that yeah. particular genre. I mean, it's just incredible what he's able to do. And he's just tossing them off like oh, for the movie. You know, whereas other people be like tortured to create a next album. He's just like moving on to the next thing and just seems to effortlessly create these great. I mean, the lyrics are so fucking hilarious and good. And that's the genius of those lyrics. Well, there's, a, there's another group in the East End called the Originals. And uh, we had to rename ourselves. So the new Originals. New Originals. Yeah. And then uh, they became the Regulars. They changed their name back to the Regulars. And we thought, well, we could we could go back to the Originals about what's the point. And supposedly, when they've been interviewed, and they remember it, they remember they've got like 30, 30 to fifty different names of like a <laughs> band. They were once like a Jewish folk band, like what the name of the band was for that too, and they remember it. Like they, that's the thing is like with this movie is like they've built as actors should like this entire rich history over a year. And half of it doesn't even make it into the film. <laughs> we should point out, too, is that they have to do that because there are people out there. You know, we talk about, like, the geek mm. buddies who are our experts on all things geek. <laughs> there are people who know every single fact about Spinal Tap, every band member, everywhere they played, every different name, every song, every lyric. And so if the guys doing one of their improvs gets one of those details wrong, you have all these Spinal Tap, you know, nerds who are going to be upset about it. And then we cut to, they've changed their name to the Tensman. And we cut to our archival footage of them on Pop, Look, and Listen doing Give Me Some Money. Give me some money. Give me some money. The song is good. It is a perfect, you know, middling British invasion mid 60s song. It's a perfect song. That spot. <laughs> and, but you know what? We died. We, we were wound it oh, four God. times. Michael McKean does, he's doing this thing with his eye too. Yeah. It's like, it's like halfway in, halfway. I'm like, with the, with the moppy hair, oh my dear God, die every time that scene, every time. And the, you know, 12 seconds of Ed Begley Jr. playing the drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing. And it is, it, from what I've read, uh, <laughs> Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall's house in the Hollywood Hills in the late 70s was the mecca. For comedy. Oh, I bet. It, it, they were having parties five nights a week, and everyone, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, all everybody came to that. That was the place to be. And so all, a lot of these people that are in this movie are the people, the funniest people around that they were hanging out with at the time. All taking small parts, too. It's incredible. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, the reason we only see Ed Begley Jr. for a little while is that his character, John Stumpy Peppies, <laughs> died. He died in a bizarre gardening accident some years back. It's really one of those things that was, you know, the authorities said, you know, best leave it unsolved, really. (laughs) Again, watch Rob Reiner's reaction shots (laughs) throughout this whole thing. I don't know who plays the funniest version of Not Too Bright in the world, but Christopher Guest... It's it's oh, yeah. an amazing well because what he thing. does too is it's more of like a he is so committed in his mind that he is right and he's yeah. so friggin' wrong. It's 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 brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the thing too, I think that Nigel is a good musician. Like he is oh, a ta- yeah. you know, like he's a talented musician. It's so and he has been a rock star, so of course he's right. You know, right, just right. make I'm good at this and people cheer me, therefore I must know a lot about fatal gardening accidents or anything. <laughs> and this is and we hear the, the next drummer that we play replaces him is Stumpy Joe. The, the the official explanation was he choked on vomit. It's actually he passed uh, away. It was actually someone else's vomit. Oh my god. <laughs> this whole thing. You can't we couldn't we, we could never we never were able to find out whose vomit it was. You can't dust for vomit. Yeah, dust so. for vomit. Oh my god. <laughs> Which by the way is true. I mean you can't yeah. you can't dust for vomit. And then we head uh, into our party in New York City and meet Fran Drescher, oh. who they apparently didn't know her before this. I think she auditioned. She is incredible. Yes, Bobby Blackman. Bobby, of course. The How are you? Oh, we the know. Oh, we know. You know, you know. And by the way, one of the things they did, they really tried to always use the first take because it's the first take when everybody's reactions, because they didn't know where it was going, and the reactions are really, really honest. Yeah. And most of this Fran Drescher is getting in the first take. Oh, my God. I mean, the president of SAG now, if you can believe that. Oh, weird craziness, man. So... Yeah, I mean, she does such a wonderful job as one of those uh, hostesses and all that kind of. You've got to, you don't talk so much. You uh, come over, you got to meet this guy. And then she brings over the regalness of Patrick McNee from the Avengers there to come in, the original Avengers, you you young kids, the original Avengers from the, from the British stuff to come over and play an executive, which totally makes sense. Uh, yep. You know, just so brilliant the way it all kind of plays out and everybody's moving around each other. It feels so real, you know? And because this is a hip New York rock and roll party, naturally, all the caterers, the servers, passing hors d'oeuvres are mimes. <laughs> and the first one we see is Dana Carvey. Yeah, Dana Carvey. And, and this is one where I, I mean, I didn't, when I saw this movie, I didn't, there was no Dana Carvey. Right. You know, I probably saw it 86 and I don't, I, he, I, he probably started at SNL a couple of years after this. And you have Billy Crystal, who I certainly knew who Billy Crystal was. Right. And his line, which is just so goddamn perfect. Come on, don't talk back, huh? Mime is money. Let's go. Come on, move it. <laughs> Mime is money is a fucking... Fu- it's said in that harsh, <laughs> angry tone. That's perfect. This is one of those scenes you need to go look at because there's delete. There's like a three-minute deleted scene. Oh, my God. Of, of um, Billy Crystal, like prepping dana carvey to be to, yeah. like he's got too much meat on his plate and like how you mine and like you, know, you go against the wind, go against the wind and boring <laughs> all the other bombs around it's I, I that is that is one that i wish actually would have stayed in the film because it was just it was 
it's, it's spectacular. Well, just the quick shot of him going, don't do the cat in the thing. I, I'm doing the cat in the thing. You do something else. I do something else, which is genius. But I will say this, Steve, you, 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 with the Dana Carver thing, it, the film came out in 84. Dana Carver got on SNL in 86 because I looked this okay. up. So I wonder if Crystal, who had been for that one fateful season on SNL with Christopher Guest, I wonder if he maybe in the interactions with Dana Carvey kind of gave him some pointers or tips to help him uh, get in, on, onto SNL. I, I wonder, you know, but, or it could just be these great com- comedic geniuses all kind of uh, at a young part in their lives, hanging around each other, doing small parts in this movie, but it's great the way they interact with each other. I mean, can you imagine being in a circle where all of these people are going to go all of these places? You yeah. Know? I mean, the nanny is one of those iconic '90s sitcoms, all because of Fran Drescher. So you know, right. there's so much comedic talent in and at Bagley. You know, there's so yeah. much comedic talent in this entire film. And the other thing that's great about this whole party scene is it's it's it, it seems exactly like you expect oh. this to be, and yet yeah. you can see the seeds mm-hmm. right at the beginning of this is not going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> this tour is going. We're going to have some problems, and it ends with tap into America. <laughs> Oh, so perfect. And by the way, we have all been, <laughs> I mean, yes. oh, marketing, yes. marketing people. Oh. I guarantee you, every, mar- <laughs> sorry for marketing person that's listening to this, was like, yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Meanwhile, the rest of us are going like, oh, God. Like, good luck. Good luck. Well, so, it, it, it happens a lot. We'll, I'll bring yeah. it up later, too. But there's so much of like, you can see the thing going wrong and you can even see, even though our band is not the smartest people in the world, yeah. they can see it's going oh, yeah, wrong. Sense. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you just like, what, what can we do? <laughs> you know, there's very little that they can do. Um, we're in the limo with Bruno Kirby who sees that one of the women is reading. Yes, I can. You know what the title of that book should be? Yes, I can. The Frank Sinatra says it's Okay. <laughs> Because Frank calls the shots for all those guys. In the middle of him talking, they roll up that window, separating the, the driver from the back seat. It is just terribly rude. Yeah. What's so funny? So my experience with Bruno Kirby was this Good Morning Vietnam when Harry met Sally. Mm. I didn't go back and realize that's him in Godfather 2. Yeah, right. As until the, later, as until after I already knew who he was from these yeah. movies. And so it's so funny to go like where his career, you know, this is six years after Godfather 2, he's making this movie. Yeah. And he was playing literally the heavy as Clemenza. <laughs> and now he's doing this. And then we go into the backseat where we meet for the first time, their manager, Ian Faith, which is uh, Tony Hendra. I didn't realize apparently Tony Hendra attempted suicide the night before the first day of filming of Spinal Tap. Holy shit. And he says that the joy he experienced making the film is what brought him back from that depression. Wow. 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 Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's incredible because he goes on to do so many things as a producer and a writer uh, afterwards. But, you know, those are those moments, those days, they grab you. And if you can walk through them, as I say on my no- other shows, you never know what's waiting for you on the other side if you can just make it through a tough night like that, you know. So glad he did. Yeah, I mean, and, and, it's and essential it's, to the show, essential to the movie. Oh, I mean, yeah. oh yeah, you talk about Rob Reiner being the unsung hero. This guy, I mean, because he's not that well known at the time, so you're just watching this guy and how he's interacting with everybody. The cricket bag thing we're gonna get to him dealing with uh, uh, his his girlfriend, the guy's girlfriend. All of that, it just works so well. Uh, I mean, him going after poor Paul Benedict at the 
at the hotel is just hilarious. So there's there's so much about him that works in this film. Well, and I think one of the keys yeah. is you have all these funny characters is that he is not going for laughs. Nope. Yeah. It's not that he's not funny, but he's never going for, he's never trying to be funny. He is yeah. just in the scene. Um, and in this particular scene, we're talking about heading to Philly and how the tour is going to go and that the album is going to be coming out. And there you can see they're anxious about this album hitting the market and how it's going to handle during the tour. So you are hitting that market. We're, we're, we're certainly, uh, we're certainly doing, I'm doing everything I can. That is such a perfect line that contains multitudes of yeah. stuff he's not telling them, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm certainly doing everything I can. <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to concert this is this is my favorite song i i mean big bottom may, may, may i do for you a dramatic reading Just of please. the lyrics please. of this song <laughs> the bigger the cushion the sweeter the pushing that's what i said the looser the waistband the deeper the quicksand or so i have read my baby fits me like a Can I tell you, as I was watching it this morning in the living room, and Lindley works from home just like I do, my girlfriend. My, I'm sorry, my life partner. I get in trouble when I'm saying my life partner. She looked up and she goes, what are you watching? What is this? <laughs> 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 loose. I was laughing so hard at these lyrics, man. John, let me just say to you, yeah. big bottom, big bottom. Talk about bum cakes. My gal's got him. Big bottom. Drive me out of my mind. And then the most brilliant line of all time is, how can I leave this behind? Those are two different meanings. There are two meanings to that. Yeah. He could be leaving it. Yeah. Or he, he could be calling it a behind that he doesn't want to leave. I mean, yeah. this is next level fucking genius. In yeah. Lyrics. But again, hidden, not hidden, but like, yeah. Again, no. at 12 years, like, again, 12 years old, or even the first time you're listening to it, you're just like, bang on the you're, just, you're not really, if you're not really <laughs> listening to it, you're like, that's a fuck, that is a fucking great song. I'm going to go find them on Spotify right now. <laughs> what the fuck are they saying? What are they saying? <laughs> you know? Well, and A, because they're 100% sincere in their performance. Yes. B, it's all also obviously a reference to Fat Bottom Girls from Queen, which yeah. is also sort of like, and, and they don't know. The great thing about Spinal Tap is they're sincere. They don't they don't think this is funny. Yeah. This is just a, like a love song, like an erotic love song, you know? Yeah. Um, but by the way, they, they these guys are all musicians and they're all good musicians. Yeah. And they worked really hard to make sure they, this is dubbed. I mean, like, like most musicals is they pre-recorded the tracks and then they're playing back to playback, but they really, really wanted to make sure they got every single piece of fingering on the instruments, right. That they're always playing it correctly. Cause they didn't want that knock on them to be, that they didn't really play this. And then the yeah. editors get it and the editors, editors, we don't care about you. And so they're just moving shots around because they think that's a good shot at that moment, even though the, the fingering on the instruments doesn't actually match the song and they come in to see the cut and they are fucking furious <laughs> <laughs> and they really, really push to get all those pieces to be correct. 
um, which I think is 100% right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> now, John, you've done a lot of interviewing. You've had yes. actors. And Do you generally like just read the worst possible reviews <laughs> to their no, work and have them I react mean, to it? <laughs> not if I want to interview the person again. But I mean, that. But that's perfect for DeBerge because we don't get too much with DeBerge like on his own, right? So, c- confessionals or whatever. So you're left to ponder why he makes this kind of decision. So it's the opening is such a cheesy opening for this documentary for a guy who's he's clearly up his own ass thinking that he's creating something phenomenal he's just as bad as spinal tap he's just as out of touch with how uncool he is in in this whole thing and so it's great so when he's reading these things is he doing this to get a reaction or is he doing this because he's so stupidly oblivious (laughs) that he's saying these things that hurt these guys michael mckean is the star of this scene his reactions to all these kinds of things are hilarious and then at the end where they're like, oh, they wouldn't print that. They would. That's not true. Uh, it's just genius to see Michael slowly micro-reacting to yeah. all these little things that are coming as they get worse and worse. A shit sandwich or whatever. I, well, I have to say, so that that moment in the film, yeah, moment in the film with, yeah, with with shark shark sandwich, well, yeah. shit, shit sandwich. <laughs> you, if you haven't seen it, go back and rewatch it. It's one of the only moments that film, both those guys nearly break. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> Where'd they print where that? that? Where'd yeah, they print that? That's not real, is it? You can't print that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I went back, I kept re-watching. I'm like, they, it is, it, it's, that's one of my favorite moments. It's just Rob Reiner, like, out of nowhere, like, shit sandwich. And the two of them do, like, a... <laughs> even lips start to purse and then they pull themselves back i love it well and i could so see how rob prepared for this because he you know he wrote out those things ahead of time he's like okay i'm gonna this is the first quote this is the second we'll end with shit sandwich um uh and and then we cut from there to what says recording industry convention atlanta georgia it is clearly at the bonaventure it's like one of the most famous buildings in downtown los angeles Uh, and again, we're talking about the album. Wow, we can't promote the album. It doesn't exist yet. So they're just experimenting with uh, with some new uh, packaging materials, right? Which again is a plant. And and then almost as an afterthought, Ian says, "Oh, there's uh, the other thing is that the uh, the Boston gig has been canceled." <laughs> <laughs> like what? Ian is Ian is not a good manager. <laughs> No, not at all. And that's, and that's, what's great too as well. And you, John, you alluded to it before, but supposedly the theme of the second, of the second movie, it it deeply, deeply gets into that. It's the idea that that he actually died because he passed away. Uh, He died and left his wife. This it's one more contract that spinal tap has to play. So forces them to come back together. That's supposedly the theme of the second, uh, summer of the second movie. Oh, that's great. We're at a party again with Fran Drescher with uh, Bobby, and he goes to ask her 
about the cover. Ian, you put a greased, naked woman on all fours with a dog collar around her neck and a leash. And a leash. And a man's arm extended out up to here, holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? And the thing is, man, if you look at heavy metal album covers of the 70s and early 80s, or, or, or music videos of that era, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what I like, she plays it fully straight and yeah. fully angry. She is genuinely offended and angry about this thing. Yeah. Oh, I like what Ian says. Well, you should have seen the cover they wanted to do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my, and my mind goes, oh my God. What yeah, would be exactly. Worse? <laughs> well, and there, I mean, and there are censored album covers. There's the Beatles censored album cover. Right. Which I think is, it's them like as surgeons or something like that. And, yeah, what was the one with John and Yoko where they, they were naked on the cover? They had to yeah. settle with the brown wrapper or whatever to mm-hmm. cover. Yeah, I remember that. And I don't think that a sexy cover is the answer for why an album sells or doesn't sell. Because you tell me, the white album? What was that? There was nothing on that goddamn cover. <laughs> it, it's such a great plant. <laughs> because, of course, the thing is, it's like, yeah, because it's from the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to release the album. Because they have decided that the cover is sexist. Well, so what? Yes. But what's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no sexist. <laughs> and now we're arguing about the music. And by the way, in this whole conversation, we see that Nigel has a giant cold sore on his lip. Oh. That David has a giant cold sore. Yes. My understanding is this: there's a deleted scene where there's some groupie, and the person playing the groupie actually did have a giant cold sore, and so then they thought it would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> to have both Nigel and David have giant cold sores, implying that they both had sex with this groupie. Yeah, yeah. But then I guess they cut the groupie, and then an executive again, executive. No offense, Michael, but I don't look. consider myself an executive. <laughs> well, good because executives, you know, I mean, you know what they're like. Those those people. Yeah. Um, is that apparently executive watching? It was like, oh, I didn't get it before. So this is about that David and Nigel are gay. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Yes. The, yes. The answer is yes. Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah. Is, is that going to get it funded? Yes. Right. <laughs> um, and and then we're just like, okay, we're going to figure out a compromise for the album. It's going to be fine. Every it's, everything's going to be fine. Do you remember the first song that you guys ever wrote together? All the way home, probably. Yeah. All the way home. Yeah. Can you remember a little bit of it? I'd love to hear. Christ. This is the best moment in the movie. And I did. Re- I I couldn't find it, but I I, I guarantee it because of the way they improv this. This yeah. is a one hundred percent musical improv moment. What? And they, I have to be willing to bet. Only the only reason why I think that is because he starts the song right beside the railroad track. He gets lyrics. He goes, and I'm waiting for that train to bring you back. Bring me back. Which gives them a moment to think of. If she's if 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 she's not on the five nineteen, then I'm gonna know what sorrow means, and I'm gonna cry, cry, cry all the way home, all the way home, all the way home, all the way home, all the way home. I 100% have to believe that if if it wasn't 100% improv, that most of it was, and you could tell with the way they are going back and forth with each other. That is that is how they wrote all the music for this too, because they probably this is probably just like one of a thousand sessions that they had with each other to create yeah. music like this. And then since then, you know, they've 
you know, with, with their, they've done the acoustic version. If you go look it up, I think it's a 1992 Albert Hall. I mean, they've done recordings of all these elongated the song and it sounds like a beautiful, you know, acoustic version of one of the first songs they would have ever created. Yeah. It's such a perfect little R&B riff. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's so what, you know, being a huge fan of the Beatles and knowing what the Brits were listening to in terms of American music, yeah. it's exactly the first kind of song that they would write together. You know, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, I, I totally agree. It's a great, great moment. Yeah. One thing that puzzles me um, is the makeup of your audience it seems to be uh, predominantly young boys. <laughs> Their response is, well, it's a sexual thing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that, and it's also that women are fearful of them. That was my theory. They see us on stage with tight trousers. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening, the size. It's so it's so funny the just the bits because the next yeah. one is a bit and it is a perfect bit and it, apparently it's referencing some Rolling Stones thing or something that they were unhappy with. I'm not exactly sure what which it is, but Nigel is unhappy because the bread is small. <laughs> right, he can't wrap the bread around the meat. <laughs> and I love that Ian comes up to solve the problems. Like, no, no, he's, he's saying to fold the meat and it'll fit on the small bread. And I just like, I can't fold the bread. The bread, it breaks. And then it's wrapped. And it's just, look, just, you're going to have to watch it. I can't really describe <laughs> it. It's really funny. Well, because again, it's just this, like the ego of a, of a character just complicated. And, and then again, the graciousness of the actor next to you to go along with your stupidity to find, you know, the ultimate goal of the joke. And, and you know, quick tip to all of you out there. You actually can't tell the star of the show that he's a moron. Yeah. Right. Which is really the yeah. solution. Yeah, of course. You can't say, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? Just fold the meat and put the bread right here. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. That's the genius of, 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 these moments because you're like oh yeah you have heard about stories about people like this because they're so out of touch so rich they're not that intelligent that they just they have all this time to kill before singing uh, in the concert that they're just like sitting there and just all of a sudden these weird ideas come into their head born from all the drugs they've taken trying to figure this <laughs> out Un unbreakable bread is in essence what he's trying <laughs> to create how do you gentlemen feel about the song hellhole <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, that's a positive reaction yeah, every yeah. one of them man every yeah, song no, true. <laughs> and, true. And, and nigel in a rock star moment goes down on his back continuing to play his guitar solo <laughs> and then realizes he can't get up yeah <laughs> and I, what, what sells it for me in addition to the roadie just desperately trying to lift oh, him and yeah. it not working but the moment that he gets up, it's like a celebration, you know, mm. like I've done it. <laughs> uh, we're with Nigel and his guitar collection and his amps. Do you play all? I mean, do you actually play all these or? Well, I play them and I cherish them. And this is, I would, this is the most famous, famous yeah, line classic. of the movie. The, the whole scene is funny as he's talking about each of these guitars. And the, when he picks up one, he goes, listen, how much is Just this? listen for a minute. I'm the not, sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because yeah. it really, it's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. 
Yeah, you can go go and have a bite. No, you still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. <laughs> we hear about his guitar with a custom pickup that's got a radio unit. That's a plant that's going to come later. Uh, and then the next guitar is. I'm just going to play the bit. But don't touch it. I, don't well, touch I, it. I wasn't going to touch it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I, well, don't point even. Don't it even point. Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, can I, I look I, at no. it? No, no. You've seen don't enough of that it. one. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I can just listen to you do these quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how's my how's my accent like how am i doing you're, good. So you're doing good I, yeah I, I won't comment on that yeah, I, 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 <laughs> michael i love you but for this review i trust john far right, more than right, yours yet here's the thing but you're i'm delivering the lines you're delivering the lines i'm not gonna stop doing it so no, you know of course, not. Of course not. look i had i had tremendous trepidation about all the things i had to say we did to django <laughs> <laughs> now i can just like you know yeah, yeah. Know. be free it's freeing me up it's freeing me up <laughs> let's go look at the amps oh. gentlemen the numbers all go to 11 does that mean it's louder is it any louder well it's one louder isn't it it's not 10 i can't the highest just be 10 <laughs> just turn it up a little bit louder <laughs> what we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff you know what we do I'll put it up to 11. 11 exactly one louder why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder and the pause. The pause is the key. The pause. The pause. And then just the soft. These go to 11. <laughs> he is, in essence, trying to shatter uh, Neil's reality <laughs> by saying this. Yeah. And so in a desperate, like, just, no, these go to 11. Not six-minute abs, seven-minute abs. And so it's just like, it's got to fit this thing. Stop taking me. Stop making sense. I can't. Uh, I can't go down the road so quick. Marshall, after this movie was made, Marshall wound up making two amps: one that went from <laughs> one to ten, and another one that went from eleven to twenty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Oh. So good. What, what's what's funny is it also works perfectly because it's almost back to back with the fold the the bread yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, they're both people who can't are trying to help Nigel out yeah. <laughs> and that it just isn't going to work. Uh, we are at the hotel and there is Paul Benedict in ridiculous thick lenses. Oh God. Uh, best yeah. known, of course, from the Jeffersons. Ugh. And there's a slight problem. They wanted seven suites. Mistakenly, they only have one seat suite on the seventh floor. <laughs> <laughs> Easy mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good sized room, sir. It's a it's a king leisure. We can get you. Yeah. A, a How are we going to get fourteen people in a king leisure bed? Oh, I I think they do a perfect job of modulating the descent of the tour, mm. of making oh, right. it yeah yeah perfectly worse and worse at every single stage. And as Ian, I love I love the button on the scene as Ian is getting angrier and angrier, and calls a Paul Benedict a twisted old fruit, and Paul Benedict says. I'm just as God made me. So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And he gives him the final line in that interaction so that, you know, it's their small little way of saying like, don't go after LGBTQ people, man. Yeah. They're equal. Um, but also th he must love Paul because he uses them in Guffman as well. Yep. So maybe he was a big, like fucking Jefferson's fan. I don't know because he they, them again. they have specifically called him Fred Willard. Oh and yeah. Grand pressure out. Like, 
those they've, they've called them out numerous times in in interviews, DVD oh, extras, yeah. all the rest. But absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, what would you say? What percentage of actors can do this? This Which kind one? of thing. I, I'd be in an improv movie, create your own material. Oh, yeah. like this. Right, right. Ten percent, five percent at 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 most. I mean, that's the thing. It's like even the office isn't really like that's. That's right. mostly scripted. It's no, that's scripted. Yeah, yeah Herb as well. Feel that way. So, not a lot, man. It's yeah. not, not a lot. Yeah, two percent, maybe. And we're in the lobby. By the way, I think this is a Holiday Inn in Glendale that they're shooting this. <laughs> um, and we're in the lobby, and in comes walking through that lobby is the real current rock star Duke Fame, along with his manager Howard Hessman. Yes. Yeah. Here's how, how how Howard Hesman got into this. They get this guy to play Duke Fame, and then they're shooting with him and realize that he can't, in fact, do the thing we're talking about. He can't really improvise. And they're like, we need to get somebody out. They love his look. And they go, "Let's is Howard around? And so they fly <laughs> Howard in. And he literally, he's got like two lines, and he's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I love that the band is trying to talk to him and talk to Howard. And Howard says... Listen, we'd love to stand around and chat, but we gotta sit down in the lobby and wait for the limo. <laughs> <laughs> and get some uh, Ian's name or Liam's name wrong, right? Calls him Ian or something yes. like that. It's his name wrong. <laughs> um, and and and, and, it's, and then what we find out is that this big rock star used to open for Tap, and that they had to apologize for him. <laughs> then the other thing is, is that apparently his album has a lured cover it's naked women and he's tied down to this table and it's got these whips and it's semi-nude well the point is it's much worse than smell for glove yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's number three because he's, he's the victim three. their objections were that she was the victim you see oh. that's all right i mean if the singer's the victim it's different oh he did a twist on it and <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I love it's the moment of where you see that they think they get it. And we know that, no, they still really, they don't get it. And then this line, this might be the line. I know that it goes to 11 is the line of the movie, but this line might very well be the line of the movie for me was, it's such a fine line between stupid and clever. <laughs> that is going to be on my gravestone. I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. It's, it is. That is the, that's the line for me too, Steve. Well, and it's funny too, because I would say this is probably where your and my appreciation of certain humorous things split off because where you draw the line between stupid and clever, it's not where I draw the line. Oh, no, no, that is for sure. Cause there's a whole bunch of stuff that you just adore and lots of people adore. And I'm like, I don't, I, it's just stupid. <laughs> just <seems> stupid to <laughs> me. Um, by the way, this Duke guy is an actual heavy metal guy, Paul. Oh. You know, he, yeah, he, he, um, uh, was part of quiet riot for a while. He's done a number of, <laughs> Show. yeah he's been a part of a number of groups but one of his big claim to fame the claims to fame is that he wrote and performed the song eggman for dr eggman in sonic adventure 2 for sega which a lot of people know uh wow. that song and so yeah and he did a he was just written a bunch of stuff and he still records still performs uh in all that kind of stuff and um he even did it he even reprised the role in uh uh, in a group called the B a Big Sin City Sinners, so they would perform every once in a while around at Vegas and shit. So, mm. yeah, uh, a legitimate rocker. So I like that. And like you said, Steve, they realize this guy can't do this shit. So using Hessman, who is so great at that kind of stuff, yeah. uh, to cover for him is so good. I have a small piece of bad news. 
Although it may not be For a change. Bad. We're, uh, <laughs> we're cancelled here. At the hotel? No, we're cancelled. The, the gig is cancelled. <laughs> I think it was at this point I started really feeling bad. I, now I started feeling bad. I started feeling uncomfortable now. Because this yeah. is also the turning point where, like, the start of feeling really, really bad mm-hmm. that it was not going to turn back around. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it's funny. All three of us, I know, have been in terrible plays. <laughs> yes. And and had to go up. And, and the thing about being in a terrible play that runs for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, <laughs> is you still have to go. And you still have to, and you're backstage. Yeah. And you're like, all right, let's let's put on a great show, guys. Cause that's and you know, and everyone knows it's bad. Everyone knows it's not going over. And the it's it, uh, so it hurts so much to watch it happening. <laughs> the last time Tap toured America, they were uh, booked into ten thousand seat arenas and fifteen thousand seat venues. And it seems that now on the current tour, they're being booked into. 1200 seat arenas 1500 seat arenas and uh, i was just wondering does this mean uh, the popularity of the group is waning <laughs> first of all marty that is a stupid question because <laughs> obviously that's what it means and it's a horribly mean question and the answer is no i just think their appeal is becoming more selective <laughs> so, yeah that's true no i think that's actually exactly right and then we ask him about the cricket bat Oh man, it's so good. In play? Um, no, I carry this uh, partly out of uh, I don't know, sort of, sort of. Uh, uh, I, I suppose uh, what's the word? Um, Affectation. Have you known cricket bat style bosses who have like an affectation? Oh, good. Question. I definitely have. Good question. Not just not like specifically a cricket bat, but like had a thing. Does vaping count? Because that was the, my, yeah, I haven't <laughs> dealt with that. Yeah. Not bad, though. To be quite frank with you, it's come in useful in a couple of situations. Wow. Certainly in the uh, topsy turvy world of heavy rock. And we do see him destroying things. He just destroys a TV. That must have been so satisfying, by the way. I, oh, I yeah. love to be able to, like, you want me to hit this TV? Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Hey, you got to do that with a Miata in the desert. I did do that with a Miata. <laughs> uh, it's so funny when I, so, so this is on this uh, series uh, web series. It's called siren that uh, Mike is in and John has been, and my car had died and it was the car of the main character. And so my accountant said that it would be a good tax deduction to just destroy it as part of the movie. So we did. And I got to hit the front windshield with a baseball bat. And I remember just, swinging as hard as i fucking could and that safety glass that shit works it's really hard to yeah. break a front windshield with a baseball bat when i broke the side windshield the door windshield, those broke really easy that was that was definitely satisfying and then we cut to david st hubbins on the phone with his girlfriend and then he hears that she is going to come meet him on the tour and he is so excited and he goes to the rest of the band members and says, well, my problems are solved, mate. Who's that? Janine, she's going to come meet us. And the cut to Christopher Guest, <laughs> his reaction is so perfect. Yeah. But it's not till April. Is she coming to drop some stuff off? You know, and no, no, right she's back. coming on the road. She's going to travel with us. She's going to go on the road with us. She says she can hear that I'm eating too much sugar on the phone. She says my larynx is fat. <laughs> 
And then they go to the next room because uh, Derek calls them in because one of their old Thamesman songs is playing on the radio. Yeah. They're all really excited. Oh, and then we hear the announcer say, Doesn't it feel good with the Thamesman and cups and cakes? The Thamesman later You're changed their names to Spinal Tap. They had a couple yeah. of sized hits. They're currently residing in the Where Are They Now file. Oh. <laughs> so brutal, man. So brutal. Let's visit the grave of Elvis Presley in Graceland shot in Altadena, California. <laughs> I, have you ever done, have you had a, like, I need to go visit this grave site? Cause you know, of, of Oh, sure. I went to, when we, when I was studying in London in 98, I went, when we went to Paris for four days, I went to the Jim Morrison yeah. grave site for sure. Cause I was in a big doors kick back then. Um, and the John Kennedy one living in, you know, DC is uh, when I did, um, for sure. But I've always wanted to go to Graceland. I've never been. Yeah. So I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to see his, uh, his headstone as well. So they, they've done this because they think this is going to be an important spiritual moment to visit <laughs> the grave of the King. And then they feel they should sing something. And the reason, by the way, it's heartbreak hotel is that's the only song they can get the rights to. I, thought I was going to so, ask. Yeah. 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 And then they're trying to find the harmony do it with the harmony parts. Right. Well, since, since my, my baby, baby in the same key though, I think. Well, since, since my, my baby, baby left me. If I'm going, since my baby left me, me. No, you can't hit that note. Mm-hmm. Since my, mm-hmm. since my baby left me. Well, I, well, found, I found a new, new place to dwell. dwell. Uh, that's amazing to me how perfectly badly they do it. Yeah. Oh, this is thoroughly depressing. It really puts perspective on things, though, doesn't it? No, too know? much. There's too well, much yeah, fucking perspective now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too much fucking perspective is also one of my favorite lines <laughs> in the film. Uh, we start talking about 67 when Spinal Tap finally came into, into existence, and we go to the song Listen to the Flower People. Listen to what the flower people say. This is my favorite of their flashback performances. <laughs> and in particular, it's the shh from Derek Smalls. <laughs> yeah, this is where it kind of veers into the Ruddles territory a little mm, bit. At times, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Know? But but I prefer this. I think the Ruddles is okay. I've seen that one like two or three times. But I think, I think the humor here is, works better. And maybe because I didn't grow up in Britain, because there's a lot of British humor you would probably get uh in in that in the ruddles but like this one just, just nails it and them doing this and of course once again like parodying the beatles a little bit how they changed from like doing their skiffle band stuff into these like you know uh influenced by psychedelic drugs and the maharaja or whatever it was doing all of that and the studying they did and the music they came out with and and so i, I thought it was hilarious man and almost and a little bit almost like sinatra if you guys remember sinatra when he tried to uh, wear the Nehru jackets there in the late sixties, go and find those in the early seventies, go and find those videos is real uncomfortable dog is real. uncomfortable. <laughs> Seeing him sing with the fifth dimension, wearing Nehru jackets. And I mean, bright colored Nehru jackets. And you're just like, you're still trying to stay relevant in some yeah, ways. So you you know. got to stay in your lane. Know who you yeah, are. Basically. Yeah. The, the, 
And then we hear uh, <laughs> about their next drummer who also died yeah. in mysterious circumstances. He uh, spontaneously combusted. And I assume they probably have like, again, made up 36 different ways. I'm like, sure they Oh, have. yeah, right. Spontaneous combustion was just like, we, like, we're to eat, like, you, you have, that is the, that is the most ridiculous thing in the world. There's like, all the other ones were so, com- there was like, no, just spontaneously combusted. You know, it was just like, they, they've earned our trust so much. Yeah. They can just be like, yeah, spontaneous combustion, fine. Great, good to go. Uh, we're at a mic check in Milwaukee and they're playing a little bit of Give Me Some Money. This is the only live playing they actually do in the movie. And in comes David's girlfriend, Janine Pettibone, played by June Chadwick. Apparently, they did like one line of improv with her and knew that she was the right person for this. Wow. And and she's great. Yeah. She is just perfectly in that zone. Yeah. Um, and David is super happy and runs in the audience, and Nigel stands there watching. Uh, it's later on, and Ian is going to it's the moment they've been waiting for because Ian has their album. Yeah, and they open it up and it's the black album. <laughs> it it listening, listening to the process. Oh man. I love Derek. He's trying to make the best of it. He said, Oh, you can see yourself in it, both sides. That's <laughs> <laughs> so black. It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is None, none is that good? more none black. More, none more black. <laughs> That's my favorite line. None more black is my favorite. Oh my god, none more black. And, and David is again, he's furious and he's correct. Yeah, he, yes. he, it doesn't say spinal tap on it. <laughs> They're not the Beatles. This is not, this is not going to work. They that inspired the uh, the uh, the Metallica Black Album in 1991. Uh, oh, they, really? they came out and yeah, they came out and admitted it that they were inspired by this. Uh, and there have been a number of Black albums. The Beatles had a Black album that came out in the 80s that was bootlegs, copies mm. of it, every one of the Beatles singing those songs uh, solo. Mm. And they had kind of compiled this into a Black album to the counter of the White album uh, because that's when they were breaking up, right? So it's those songs right. that are all sang solo. And then um, Prince had a black album in 1987 when uh, he was fighting with the studio, right. oh, I'm sorry, with the record company about what did so he just released an album of stuff and put it on a black album with nothing on the cover, not himself or anything, and just put it out there because he had to put an album out there contractually. So there have been a number of black ACDC had one, a version of it as well. So there have been a number of them. And even Jay Z had one called the black album that came out uh, in the 90, late 90s or in the early 2000s as well so you, you the black album has become legend off of what happened well, here in this moment I think you actually well, cinephiles just cinephiles <laughs> we should do a cinephiles black album you know it's, it's cinephiles after dark man there you go it would, just All... be us. It would video of us in the dark recording <laughs> and we would put the video on, it would be genius <laughs> You know what we do is like every once in a while, just like light a match and like move your face into frame. So you see a little <laughs> bit and that's it. That's all you yep. got. Uh, this is good stuff. Yep. This is our next live show too, maybe. Yeah, done. done. Uh, we're in concert. <laughs> it's rock and roll creation. We're in these cocoons. <laughs> oh, dear God. And it just, first of all, again, all the songs are good. Like, and, yeah. and Derek gets trapped in the cocoon and, because and again, because you guys have been on stage, I've been on stage when things go wrong, and it's like you, you're still trying to do the show. 
Derek yeah, is yeah, yeah. doing the show, you know, trapped in the cocoon and they're, and they're hammering on this thing and they're pulling on the thing. Trying to, by the way, the way this is operated, it's very high tech, is there's a dude underneath the platform holding the cocoon shut with his hands. Right. So when someone is trying to force it open, that guy is fighting with the guy underneath the stage trying to hold it shut. That is how high tech this is. The moment they bring out the blowtorch. <laughs> just kind of shoot it at the back. Yeah, this was the, this was the I think in the movie, this was the one like, just ridiculous over the top like physical like just f- stupid airplane-esque physical comedy of this movie and then he finally gets out just as they have to go back in of course <laughs> and then gets his arm caught uh we have an interview with the drummer in the band uh in, in the bathtub oh my god this interview is just fucking genius, man. He's so relaxed, sitting back with a shower cap on his head, first of all. Nothing more metal than a shower cap on your head. And then he lo- he reasons logically that... But it can't always happen right. to every kind of right. I mean, The law really, of averages the law says, of average says you will survive. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually making a smart career decision that'll extend my life. I actually won't die which is hilarious to me on so many levels. Seems perfectly logical. Yeah, right. Sure it does. Uh, We're on the tour bus, and now we see the separation because Janine is there, and she is hanging out with David. She's made him a lovely sort of sweatshirt thing. And the guys are at the back, and I love just that David wants to go back to play with them, and he doesn't really want to wear the sweatshirt in front of them, and it's just oh, so much good stuff. So David knows. David knows. He won't admit it, and he talks how much how much he loves Janine. Of course. But he knows. He knows her things, her creative decision isn't as good as his. So, you know, well, maybe on the same par, I guess, maybe, but he knows. Uh, absolutely and and he also i think does feel he needs janine on some weird level like it's yeah yeah. Um, we all have a few friends like this let me name two of them right now jeez mark i can't believe you said that (laughs) i wonder if you have as much influence over his musical expression oh yeah i mean i listen to him when he's experimenting and things like that when i say yeah that's good or that's bad or that's shit or whatever yeah. <laughs> you know. yes she's very honest she's brutally frank and again it's all the looks it's all the looks when we say this and it's all a play on john and yoko because they oh, went yeah. through screen therapy together they went through all that and they, the, the shot of them both going like ah with their tongues out and shit was genius just genius um, and, and this one in particular is the camera is mostly on Janine when you hear David say. And of course, it's, you know, it's so strange because Nigel and Janine are so similar in so many ways, but they just can't. They don't dislike each other at all. And there's no. great love between the two of them. But oh, they just yes. And watching her eyes and then the little side eye look that she gives as he's talking about her relationship with Nigel is perfect. Yeah. And again, I'm not going to name the names that you mentioned, Mike, but we have certainly been in the room where one couple member is talking about the other and watched the other person's face. Again, not naming the names. No, except it was. (laughs) 
So let's cut to Nigel playing the piano. Oh, my God. It's a heartbreaking fucking scene, man. The saddest key ever created. <laughs> D minor. Yeah, and my my wife, uh, who's who's uh, you know deep deep into music, he's it, it's a it's a mix between Mozart and Bach. She's like, you couldn't be more opposite. You couldn't be more opposite with those two. You couldn't be more opposite. I'm like, that's the that's the humor. That's the humor. <laughs> it's it's sort of a mock. Oh. It's a mock. <laughs> And then again, so so one of the many skills I completely lack as a writer is writing a good button. A good button. That is not, I cannot write, like, I can write something funny, but I cannot write, come up with the joke at the end of the scene. The joke at the end of the scene is so good. After all this talk about the beautiful, sad music and Mozart and Bach and listening to this music, he says, What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> and again... Rob Reiner's reaction shot of just sort of nodding. <laughs> Again, supposedly on set, this is the line that Rob Reiner was like, I lost my, I lost my shit. I literally lost my shit. And Christopher Guest, of course, saying like, it's the perfect setup. They know what they're doing for each other. That's what's great. <laughs> yeah. They know what they're doing. Yeah. We have a long bit that I don't need to go into the details of, but uh, Derek <laughs> Smalls beeps going through security. <laughs> 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 this is there's a fine line between stupid and clever yes, it is. <laughs> uh and it ends up when we finally get to it it is the large foil wrapped cucumber in his pants that that is setting off the alarms yeah uh we're in concert again the song is heavy duty this was the first song written for the movie oh oh wow and and, and it's so funny because after we've heard about women being afraid of their I forget what they called it that's in their pants. And then seeing Derek Smalls wears one regularly. There are a lot of up crotch angles <laughs> filming them yes. in this scene. And, and I love because, of course, we've heard of Nigel's love for classical music that in the middle of it, in the guitar solo, we go into, and I had to look it up, but it's Baccarini's String Quartet in E Major, mm. Opus 11, number six. Uh, we're at a Holiday Inn. Let's meet Artie Fufkin, Paul Schaefer. Oh, man. Best. Oh, what's going on here? Hi. Oh, Hi, guys. Go. Artie Fufkin, Polymer Records. Nice to see you. There is a world where Paul Schaefer became an incredible sitcom actor. Yeah, totally. We, yeah. we never got to see that world. Just like I'll never see the world where Michael Ross becomes a great late night host. It'll never. I've, I've pushed him for decades. and I've got I, it. Well, wait till, wait till you see what I'm plugging at the end of this. Okay, good. Great. Awesome. I love it. Fantastic. Good. But <laughs> but he is so good here. Whenever I've seen him pop up in roles, even in Hercules, that little role is Mercury. He is hilarious. And yes, he's a great musical genius and led the band yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But I we missed out on a on a incredible funny acting career with Paul Schaefer as yeah. a Agreed. sitcom actor, man. He so understands what is required in the uh, heart. Yeah. And he's doing it like this sort of, I, I don't know quite how to describe his character, but the ineffectual, enthusiastic, friendly, 
insecure. There's just all this stuff that just feels 100% real. And he's the guy who's in charge of their publicity for their big autograph session where we go to the record store and it's totally empty. And first he's like scolding the owner of the record store. Like, how could you do this to me? And then he wants to take full responsibility for it. (laughs) Do me a favor. Just kick my ass, okay? Kick this ass for a man, that's all. Kick my ass. Enjoy. Come on. I'm not asking, I'm telling with this. Kick my ass. (laughs) Apparently this is based on some real story that one of them had where someone was asking them to kick kick their ass for real. (laughs) This next sequence is among my favorite in the movie, which is we're backstage at the concert and it's time to go on stage. And they go down the hall and to the right and around oh the corner God. and up the stairs. And do you? And so when I was younger, do you know where this took place? No, no. It's supposed to, they're in Cleveland, ah. where, I am, oh. where I am from. So I was oh, so excited. Man. I'm like, where's it going to be? Is it going to be at Blossom? Is it going to be like what music venue are they going to show? Because I didn't know that. Of course, it all filmed in Los Angeles, and then they fucking do not goddamn make it on stage. <laughs> it's so funny and again for those of you who have not been backstage at a big theater this is totally possible there are all these tunnels and hallways and stairways and underneath the stage and around i mean like they're total mazes and apparently this is inspired there's some video and i tried to find it but apparently they'd seen some video of tom petty at a concert in Germany where he's being filmed wandering around trying to find the stage and ends up opening the door on an indoor tennis court. (laughs) 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 Um, And and I love what like, they find the guy who gives them the directions and as, as he's giving the directions, I can't even follow what he's telling them to do. There's no way they can follow it. And I love they just walk around a very short circle and come right back to him. And I'm like, can't you please just walk them to the stage? (laughs) And the other thing that's great about this whole sequence is them trying to keep pumped up. Rock and roll! Rock and roll! roll. (laughs) This used to be a nightmare of mine when I was an actor. (laughs) Oh, sure. The idea of not being able to find the stage before you're supposed to come on stage. Oh my God, that used to be a nightmare for years. And I hadn't, you know, rewatching it now, I'm like, did it come from me watching this in the 90s? I don't know. It is such an insanely aggravating scene. Um, and you're right, Steve, to point that out the fact they have to keep hyping themselves up just to be deflated again. Hyping just to be deflated again because they can't find their way to the stage. And the thing is, I bet they went on stage and did, did their show. I bet yeah, they yeah. were, you know, yeah. because, you know, because you know what the thing about Spinal Tap is? They're a good rock band. Yeah, it's like they good. Yeah, they do. They put on a show, yeah. and it's like there are weird things about it. But no, they are professional rock music. And the other thing about them, and we'll get to this at the end, but yeah. they love playing together. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the 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 conflicts that happen backstage when they're on stage that doesn't exist. You know, we we're again we're talking about the album, and as we're talking about you know the the black cover, then Janine says. Hey might have been better if the uh, album had been mixed right. Oh, here we go. And it's like, oh, the, there's the looks. And this, again, as you said, John, this is all the Yoko stuff. Yeah. You don't do heavy metal in Dublin, you know. I mean, in what? Like... <laughs> and they realize that she meant Dolby right. and laugh at her. And then as they're laughing here about this, she has something to show them. These are a new Got direction. A new idea for a new the presentation. stage look of the band. 
of all the scenes where I, as a grown up watching it and having been in meetings and conversation, this is the one that really hit home. <laughs> She's brought out all of these drawings of oh. them all in animal makeup, all based on their astrological signs. Yeah. Mike Ross, I know that you've been in this meeting. I may have. I may have been the one showing the astronaut <laughs> at, at a point. <laughs> you know what? Actually, and you so, have to again. It's just like the can't say no. So how how do you? Oh God! Yeah. Well, you know what's what? What one is Mike? Where you and I were in it together because we went to Burning Man together, and we would have meetings about what our camp was going to do. Like, <laughs> and when like brought up it was totally ridiculous and i remember making eye contact with you and going like what because you can't say to your friend that is the stupidest fucking idea i ever heard right you just have to "Mm, oh interest no that could be i'm talking about that absolutely let's waste some time let's waste time talking about that (laughs) that's you have to say well, and like, sure, we don't have enough money to do any of these things, and we're not actually going to make it to like the play's not going to happen, or the show is not going to happen, the movies. But sure, let's waste time talking. Let's let's waste time talking about that. I'm gonna. That's another one. <laughs> we're gonna keep that. That's not in the movie. That's just for this podcast. That's why I don't collaborate with more than two or three people, man, <laughs> because it just becomes too Smart. much of a clusterfuck. And I love the moment of like. Uh, this is a show. This, this is. Uh, Excuse me. This is a show. Just, just bear with us for one moment, please. <laughs> and, and by the way, uh, uh, just as we said, like Rob Reiner is an unsung hero. Yeah, yeah. Harry Shearer has to be sit in this pocket of you could see him reacting to things, and he wants to keep the band together. You know, mm-hmm. he wants everything to be okay, so he's never going to be too much of a jerk, even though you can see him having all these thoughts. Uh, it's great. You know, I I, there, there are solutions to our problems. I think we know what I've yet to hear them. Well, I've yet to hear them. It would be another quarter besides this we one. Can take a radical approach. We can say. And then they interrupt Derek, and we never get to hear what he what knew the yeah. solution to yeah. the problem was. So my question is, did he have something to say? Like, did he actually have a solution to any of these problems? Oh, yeah. I think because, of course, Derek is supposed to be kind of like the George Harrison or Ringo star of the situation. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think he does. And I think he did. But like, that's why Harry plays it so well is that he leaves it hanging in the air. He understands the dynamic with these two guys. So to play the guy who could have maybe solved these kinds of things adds even more to the tragedy of it all, which is genius. That's genius understanding of comedy. So just leave it hanging in the air there and we never hear about it. So we're left to wonder if maybe all of this could have been avoided if they had let him speak up or if he had wanted to speak up. But, you know, he plays a character that has never found the room to speak up because yeah. he doesn't want to upset the apple cart. And all the times before this where it probably could have helped solve all of their problems, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. watching the Eagles documentary, Joe Walsh is, in essence, that kind that that uh, role in that band once he joins it. Because you watch that Eagles doc and you see the battles that they have with the some of the original members. But then with when. Uh, Glenn Fry and, and uh, Don Henley would go at it, and you see Joe having to kind of navigate this because he's not necessarily a confrontational person. So it's just always so interesting, and you need that kind of energy in the band. I mean, it's so funny watching Get Back. I just go, mm. man, Ringo is Ringo's the best. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like he's just there doing the job, 
like i'm here to play <laughs> and i'm i show up i do the job yeah. oh it's the best and that's why when he wanted to quit the beatles were like yeah. well we really need to figure this out then if he wants to leave we know we've gone no problem yeah, yeah um but but we don't have to worry because nigel has the solution <laughs> and the solution he draws on a napkin is stonehenge and next to it he writes 18 and the inches sign do you think, and maybe it's impossible to remember, but do you think you noticed that when you first saw the movie? No. No way. I didn't notice it at all. Because um, it's, uh, that is, is such no, an amazing Which is also too, why, again, when it comes back, you're like, because nobody, like, except the last guy that actually has to build it, right? Right. <laughs> Easy um, mistake. Do you feel that in collaboration with David, that you are afforded the opportunity to express yourself musically the way you would like to? Well, I think I do, you know, in my solos. Yeah. My solos are my trademark. And we cut to him, shirtless, playing first just a ridiculously self-indulgent solo. Yeah. With the few, the stank face and the whole, like, getting super into it, and then playing a guitar below him with his foot, and that alone would be enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, you would feel that he had delivered on the comedic moment. But no, he picks up a violin and uses the violin like a bow to play his electric guitar. And then you would go, I'm satisfied. I feel like you've delivered on all the comedic promise of this moment. But no, because then he tunes the violin. <laughs> In that... That level of absurdity. And see, now you guys understand what it's like to go to a fish concert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I was quite high enough watching this to fully understand what it was like to go to a fish concert. But... <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> and now we're with Stonehenge. And Ian is thrilled looking at what he thinks is a model. Looks like the real thing. Oh, got it. Yeah. When we get the actual uh, set, when we get the piece, it'll it'll follow exactly these specifications. I mean, even these contours and everything. And Angelica Houston. Yeah, of all people. Of all people, sitting there looking very uncomfortable. Look, this is what I was asked to build. 18 inches, right here. It's specified 18 inches. I was given this napkin. I mean... Forget this. Fuck the napkin. <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me. So one of the things I would always put on the board when I was teaching directing... And people would always laugh, but I would always put on the board, don't trust anybody, mm. which is the idea of, and they go, what do you mean? But it's like, no, you have to verify everything. Yeah. You yeah. can't just say this character is in a beautiful blue dress. Cause what, what do you mean by a beautiful blue dress? You can't just say show up at this time at this moment or whatever. You have to check in and make sure that the thing that you want to be ready at that time or that moment is ready. You have to, you can trust, but verify in all of filming. You, yeah. you always have to check in and make sure you're on the same page. This is a classic blunder, you know? <laughs> you, and what's crazy to me, what's great, and this is, this is really where you have to accept the ridiculous of where the movie is. There's no way Ian would go forward with this at this point. <laughs> yeah, know? right, of course not. Like, you'd talk to the band, or you'd have her make the actual big one. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but I'm sorry. Again, when your billboard out front says puppets, dot, 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 and spinal tap, <laughs> I think they're kind of beyond the point of him being able to fix any of this at this point. Well, technically, we're not there yet. Oh, sorry. A few concerts down the line. Fair but enough. yes, I don't get it. Well, yeah. and what's in the budget after eight canceled shows and, exactly. and no right. album sales, yes. you know? But 
we're on stage. It's very intense. It's very dramatic. There's smoke, fog everywhere. And we hear this. <laughs> I, I, by the way, the fascination with like medieval druid stuff, connection oh. to heavy metal is always sort of been <laughs> kind of fascinating to me. Like, I don't know where that comes from, hmm. but they're saying they're poetic stuff. And we hear. And oh, how they danced. The little children of Stonehenge. And then the 18-inch Stonehenge lowers into frame. <laughs> Michael McKean's reaction to this thing <laughs> is astounding. Well, it would funny too is that it's a really small stage. It's not like there was room <laughs> for a giant Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> Nigel's playing on the mandolin, and then some little people come in dressed as you know dwarves and dance around stone edge and kick it and knock it over or almost knock it over um by the way this was in the demo this is one of the things they shot for the demo mm. and i also think by the way if you're not into this movie at this point you're fully out of this movie oh yeah you know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know how you made it this far really yeah you, and you could hear what the line before was, is that Ian, in the moment before this next scene started, says something like, oh, the band was a little off tonight. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. <laughs> and then Ian tries to pass it off on Nigel, just the way that Angelica Houston blamed him. Yeah. Like, Look, it said 18 inches. All right. I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. There's a difference between feet and inches is not my problem. I do what I'm told. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel is. <laughs> it's symptomatic of you, maybe you're taking on more than you can uh, 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 handle. And suddenly, the scene has become about something else. Oh, it's not right, exactly the first maybe... time you've messed things up, is it? David, whenever a single bump or a ruffle comes into this little fantasy, adolescent fantasy world that you guys you guys have built around yourself, you start it, screaming it, like a bunch of poncy hairdressers. By the way, here is a small filmmaking thing. This will be one of the only filmmaking points in all of this podcast. <laughs> if you watch this scene, there's a TV in the background of the scene, and the TV is like, uh, like the vertical hold, which is something that only old people would know what it is. Seems like it's <laughs> off. And the image is like rolling through and not staying. The reason for this is actually a technical reason, which is its frame rate, which is that film is shot at 24 frames per second. And TV at the time was 29.97 frames per second. So what's happening as the frames are moving through the TV, they're not matching up to the moment that the image of film is being taken. And so the frame rates are out of sync. And that's why the TV looks like that. Mm -hmm. When you have more money, you can buy a TV that will play back the image at 24 frames a second, and then you don't have this problem. Yeah. But they obviously didn't have this money. No, they did not. Do you know what oh, I spend what? my time doing? I sleep two or three hours a night. There's no sex and drugs for Ian, David. You know what I do? I find lost luggage. Yes. I, I locate mandolin strings in the middle of Austin. You. you know, you I prize the rent out of the local Hebrews. I'm a Jewish man who is going to say, I think that is a hilarious little bit of anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> David starts talking and Janine interrupts and says. What Dave is trying to say. I think it's always great when you interrupt someone by saying what they are trying to say. Yeah. You could maybe do with some help. Maybe there's someone already in the organization. We don't have to pay insurance. We don't have to pay extra room, etc. Since she's already here, she's already among us. And the wave of reactions that goes around the room at this. Yeah. When they realize who the she is and the look 
from Derek. (laughs) And again, we've all been in this where you just, you're like, okay, I'm in a slow motion train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's anything I can do to stop it. I just have to sit in the caboose and wait to die. You know, this is this is my position. Okay, I am not managing it with you or any other okay. woman, especially one who dresses Why? like an Australian's nightmare. So fuck you well, and fuck, fuck all of you too. because I quit. <laughs> then Derek, and again, it's a perfect button. Can I raise a practical question at this point? Yeah. Are we gonna do Stonehenge tomorrow? <laughs> no, we're not gonna fucking do Stonehenge. <laughs> Cut to the airport, and at first. She seems like she's handling things. She's like, here, I've got all your tickets. Everything's organized. Mm. I've worked out a whole bunch of charts. And we're like, oh, she's got charts. This is great. They're astrology charts. (laughs) (laughs) How would you characterize your relationship with David over the years? Has it changed in any way? This is where, I won't say Nigel's being sophisticated, Mm. but you can see that he is not going to answer the interviewer truthfully at this moment. Right, right. You know, which is because you don't talk about the shit within the band to the outside world. We're closer than brothers. Brothers always fight, sort of uh, disagreements and all that. And we really have a relationship that's way, way past that. Cut to them arguing in the studio about what they're recording, which I always thought was a reference to Let It Be. I always thought this was a George Harrison thing. They say it's the Trogs. Oh. That it was actually referencing, and apparently it's on YouTube. You can listen to the audio of the Trogs arguing in the studio about there's something about fairy dust and guitar licks and things like that. That's what <laughs> um, Interesting. Uh, so they're yelling at uh, each other, and of course Janine comes up, and then we cut to Derek, always saying, you know, focusing on the good. He says, "We're very lucky in the sense that we've got two visionaries in the band, people like that." The two totally distinct types of visionaries. It's like fire and ice, basically. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, I feel my role is to, in the band is to be kind of in the middle of that, kind of like lukewarm water, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's the button, you know? Yeah. yeah. I love the genius of him referencing Shelley and Byron. So, like, you know, you're looking at this guy, and you don't think much about him, and he's hiding big cucumbers and aluminum foil yeah. in his pants, but he does know about Shelley and Byron and shit. So it's just but- like... That's why he's, but that's why he's got the pipe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because he's the, it's, it's, I think the pipe is as much his affectation as the cricket bat is Ian's, Mm. you know, it's like, I am telling you what I want you to think I am, you know, we're in Seattle, Washington, and we're talking about going to the club. And then this is when Janine says, no, we're going to an air force base. The level of the lowness, like, What's I think this is like a movie searching for a bottom. You know what I mean? Like oh, how yeah. how low can we possibly go? And at the Air Force Base, which looks nothing like an Air Force Base to me, we meet Fred Willard. Uh, and they had they had done all sorts of comedy with him. They had been in it, you know, because all these groups sort of did stuff together in one way or another. Yeah. And I, it's so funny. I have never been the biggest Fred Willard fan. What? All, I've never been. I'm sorry. Like, oh, I'm going to need to go, guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to leave now. Wow. Look, I, I wow. he doesn't really make me laugh. And yet all of the people who I adore love him. So I will, I will state right now for the record that clearly I am wrong. 
<laughs> Fine, may I start by saying how thrilled we are to have you here. We are such fans of your music and all of your records. I'm not speaking of yours personally, but the whole genre of the rock and roll and so many of the exciting things that are happening in music today. I will, I will, I will uh, say that that is a very, very funny line. <laughs> yes. And then the last thing he says is, and I have just one request. Would you play a couple of slow numbers so I can dance? <laughs> Cut to working on a sex farm. Dance. Working on a sex farm. Plowing through your John, you served oh. in the military. Does this yeah. look anything like a military yeah. group? Listen at this. I mean, there's so much about this entire scene that is genius because, right, the uh, the she has no contacts in the business. So when a, a gig is canceled, she can't really call up another, no. uh, you know, another arena or a promoter and be like, hey, can you have blah, 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 blah. So it's a little bit of a commentary of these people who think they can just do it. Uh, yeah. It's not that easy. It's not. It's always built on who you know and the relationships. So the best she can do, clearly – um is this air force base and i love that they shoot they have shots of the and i don't know how uh, whatever his name is begnini whatever his name is how he got in there to shoot those establishing shots before they even show up but it works so well that you're seeing these people who are totally not the crowd for their music yeah they're dancing so immediately you set up the oh shit this is going to be terrible and then have the fred willard thing self-important military guys kind of like what bruno kirby plays in Good Morning Vietnam, oh, yeah. oh, I used to do some jokes myself. I had a character and thinks he's funny. Fred Willard playing that kind of character, thinking he's just as funny with the long hair and all this. And, you know, oh, I've, I've had an extension and, and bands and all that. So all of it is just so funny. And that they end up here. And as you said, Steve, this is the, the film Searching for the Bottom. This is absolutely the bottom that a bunch of rock and rollers are going to play their kind of music for these um, stick-in-the-mud type of proper people that you would see at an air force base. So people that there's just so much about it. That's genius. People yeah. that didn't want it in the first place. Nope. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, and they don't know how to, it's like, cause the opposite, I think the opposite scene <laughs> is in the blues brothers where they're pretending to be the good old blues brothers. Yeah. And that's a scene where they're absolutely the wrong band for the job. But yeah. what they realize is what this crowd needs. And they're so great that they can become what that crowd needs. Yeah. Yeah. Spinal tap cannot. That's not that's right. Right. That Spinal Tap is Spinal Tap, and they're playing Sex Farm, which again has fantastic lyrics. And then if and and they're totally not going over at all. And then to make matters worse, we planted it much earlier in the movie, but that radio uh, <laughs> transmitter on the guitar starts picking up the air traffic controllers. <laughs> to which, and I totally relate to this. David starts laughing. Yeah, yeah. Nigel does not think it's funny. He throws down his guitar and walks off the stage. <laughs> Has he ever done this before? Has he ever well, no, quit but, the band before? No, but it's, you know, you can't understand that, like, in the world of rock and roll, there are certain changes that sometimes occur. You, you read that, you know, you saw exactly how many people have been in this band over the years. 37 people have been in this band over the years. <laughs> so he's already rationalized Nigel away. Yeah. And Marty is shocked that he's lumping Nigel in with these people that he yeah. played with, you know. Yeah. And he's right to be shocked. Well, I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation, but still in all, I mean, you've got to be realistic about this sort of thing, you know. Cut to the Themeland Amusement Park in Stockton, California. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't think the Air Force Base is the bottom. I think this is the bottom. Oh yeah. By the so by the way, this is shot in Magic Mountain. Yeah. This is where we see the sign that says puppet show and spinal tap. If I told them once, I told them a hundred times to put spinal tap first and puppet show last. <laughs> Don't get matters at this point. But sure. <laughs> And I love Derek who says it's a morale booster. <laughs> so I have, I have a story to tell. I, I think maybe at some point I told this story before on, uh, on the show, but uh, when I was after college, I had a job, which I know I've said before, working in a copy store, making copies. Yeah. And I was the assistant manager. What I'm not sure if I've told is about the manager of the copy store. Okay. It was a guy in his forties, whose name was John Peterson. And he was a really great guy. And I was in my mid twenties. And he, he was just hilarious. And we laughed and joked all the time, had a great time. And one day I'm driving to work and I heard on the radio that Davy Jones from the Monkees mm. was playing at the Marin County Fair. And I walked into John Peterson, this guy I really liked in his 40s. And I said, oh, can you believe it? I mean, what's it got to be like to be Davy Jones, who was the Monkees? And they were, you know, so huge in the 60s. And now he's saying playing at a county fair in Marin County. It's not even a very big, it's not even like, it's not like the LA County Fair. It's the Marin mm. County Fair. That's just got to suck. And John Peterson, yeah, he said, yeah. Or it might suck that to have a one a number one song when you were in your teens in the 60s, and then in your 40s, you're working as the manager of a copy store. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> and he said, did you ever hear of a band called the Bo Brummels? Oh, John, yeah. do you know the Bo Brummels? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, uh, it's something about day or something. like. I can't remember the their, song. Their, their big hit was Laugh. Yeah, I laugh. That's right. Laugh, laugh, before I die. It seems so funny to me. Laugh, laugh, you better die. Who loves you how it feels to be? John Peterson, who was the manager of the copy store, was the drummer of the Bo Brummels. <laughs> And had and they they were on the Flintstones. They were they oh. were a, a big moderate yeah. mid sixties hit. Yeah, they had three or four albums. He played around with a lot of musicians. He had a rock star story of getting on drugs and off drugs. And him working the man being the manager of the copy store was him trying to put his life together. Wow! After all this, and I just and so like watching Spinal Tap walk into the amusement park, you know, to play, uh, you know, after the puppets, I just. There are way more John Petersons and people like this who had brushes with fame, yeah, and then had to find a way to keep working, you know. Well, I just, was tried, in- to, I just tried to find him on Spotify, but couldn't, unfortunately. So maybe for the song, I was going to give him some clicks. <laughs> I, I will totally send you their song. You. You'll know the song, you've heard it, you've heard this song. He was the drummer, so it's yeah. even funnier. It's even funnier. Oh, yeah. the drummer in their band, given what happens to the drummers in this movie. Yeah. What an interesting reference. Um, and then we're we're going over their set list, and I love the line when they figure out what songs they can do without Nigel. Oh, that's a nice little set, isn't it? That's cozy ten minutes. <laughs> Solution: Jazz Odyssey. Wow. Cut to they picked the perfect venue, by the way. Oh yeah. For that amusement park little venue, very very few people in the audience, and they go into their jazz exploration. Oh, God. Written by Derek Smalls. This is like going to see Shannon at uh, Orlando when uh, going to see him do the Wild West show. That's the auditorium, the outdoor yeah, auditorium yeah, I saw him do it in. And so seeing the pan down, and there's still people there like cheering, 
Sure. But like he, he he's trying to make the best of it by saying this is 2.0 or whatever the rebirth. Right. Mach 2, I think. It might, yeah, it's right. And then you're just like watching it and you're like, this is so sad. So incredibly sad. Man. But again, Fish does the same thing. Just it's a little, just a little different. Yeah. That's <laughs> and right. you're a little more high. Yeah. A, little, a little different. <laughs> I love fish, by the way. Don't people don't attack me. I'm going to see them three days in Los Angeles. I'm a fan. <laughs> Let me make fun of them right now. Back off. Um, <laughs> oh. there, were, there were a lot of angry comments on YouTube that we just avoided. I think. <laughs> yeah, thank God. I think. Yeah. Don't fuck with fish. That's what I've always heard. heard like, do not. Yeah. Um, we are at the end of tour party in LA. You know, it's like this your last wall. So we talk in the end of Spinal Tap, or are you going to try to milk it for a few more years in Europe? I mean, which just the word milk it is just so sad. <laughs> I'm going to play this monologue in its entirety because I think it's, it's a thing of beauty. Well, I don't, I don't really think that the end can be assessed uh, as of itself as being the end because what does the end feel like? It's like saying when you try to extrapolate the end of the universe, you say the, if the universe is indeed infinite, then how, what does that mean? How far is, is all the way? And then if it stops, what's stopping it? And what's behind, what's stopping it? So what's the end, you know, is my mm-hmm. question to yeah. you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so good. So, A lot of drugs. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we have Derek and David have this conversation, which I, I totally... I totally have had versions of this conversation, too. Yeah. We had a 15-year ride, mate. I mean, who wants to be a fucking 45-year-old rock and roller farting around in front of people less than half their age? That's so true. It's so funny now because even at this era, none of us believed, like, oh, by the way, Mick Jagger and the Stones and Paul yeah. McCartney, they're all going to still be playing 40 years from now yeah. right. in their 80s. Right. Like, that would have sounded fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and now, and then they say, and you could do all those projects we didn't have time for. And I love the, all of these. I love the rock and roll music based on the life of Jack the Ripper. And like the like the earlier one, Mike, that you pointed out, I think this is perfect improv. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. Saucy now Jack. is the time to do You're that. You're a naughty one. Saucy Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. Oh, my God. Uh, Saucy Jack. Oh. <laughs> I've always you know, wanted. I've always wanted to do a collection of my acoustic numbers with the London Philharmonic, as you know. I am sure the London Phil is aching to do that with you, David Saint Hubbins. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yep. And, and this is kind of prescient, isn't it? Because I don't know how many albums there were where a Philharmonic was doing stuff with the artist to create these. Um, uh, reinterpretation of their music because now it's everywhere. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, right. E- even even people who've passed on, like Elvis had uh, Priscilla Presley had one done a few years ago with the music of Elvis, with Elvis singing along, even though he's not around anymore. So they set their stuff to Elvis's rhythm of singing, and so McCartney's done a few of these himself uh, with his music as well. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit prescient because I don't remember yeah. that at all in '84. Yeah, I don't. I I, wonder, I actually really want, and I think it's it's the change of, you know, it used to be that there was the intellectual music of classical yeah. music, and that was totally separate from popular music. And now I think all the intellectuals accepted. Oh, I guess this rock and roll stuff's not going away. I guess it's yeah. still you're gonna, you know, I guess we gotta you know join with it. 
again, the button on the scene is great. We're lucky. Yeah, I mean, people people should be envying us, you know. I envy us. Yeah, I do. Me too. We're in the green room before a concert, and as Janine is, you know, talking to David, in comes Nigel. And there are these looks, and man, David is real not nice to Nigel. You said you're just coming to, to hang around backstage like a real rock and roll. Is that what you're doing? I'm really a messenger. He came from Ian and tells them that Sex Farm is on the charts in Japan. And Ian has asked if uh, if Tap would be inter- interested in reforming to do, do a tour of Japan. So you've come back to uh, replug our life support systems in. Is that it by the grace of your, of your uh, by the stroke of your hand? You're going to set, is that what you're going to do? You're going to bring us back to life? Is that what you've come here no, for? I've come. I mean, it's, I don't, you fucking nerve that you display no, and come. That's... It's time to go on stage. And he walks past Nigel to go on stage. And they walk away, leaving Nigel all alone. I think this next sequence is brilliant filmmaking and is so earned. Yeah. And I don't think it, it, I don't think it moved me when I was watching this 20, 30 years ago, I was moved by Nigel backstage in this scene, you know, because they're going into big bottom and he's just off stage watching. And you could see him at first. He's just like moving with the music a little bit. And then he starts to move his mouth to it. And David has looked over at him a couple of times and is, you could see it's such a love scene is what it is. I guess is it's there's David is resisting and doesn't, but, but they fucking love playing together. Yeah. Yeah. And David can't see, it's like, I, I can't say no to you, you know? And finally he gives that little head nod to say, come on. And Nigel gives him the, are you sure? Look. And he's like, Yeah. And he takes on his jacket and goes on stage and there is a big, huge cheer and he goes into his guitar solo and it is so fucking satisfying. Like it is so like, yes, this feels so great. And then that radio signal comes in again. (laughs) And if that and that, so first of all, Nigel just coming back on stage and playing, I would be satisfied. Yeah. Nigel coming back on and playing and having the radio interference, I would be satisfied in laughing. But they are not yet done <laughs> because the drummer explodes. Explodes. <laughs> you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. Cut <laughs> um, to Joe Mama Besser, our new drummer yeah. on at Kobe Hall in Japan. And they're having a, and by the way, it's a good thing that they have a Japanese flag so that we know that it's Japan. Of a couple of intimations <laughs> in the audience. Um, and and they're having this concert and it's going over huge. Yeah. And the the moment with the three of them with Nigel in the middle doing that strange sort of jump as a final image of Spinal Tap is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Then we go into credits <laughs> and we have what seemed like the outtakes. I won't do all of them. But I will ask, what are your favorites? I don't. I found these to be uncomfortable rather than funny, so it was a weird experience for me. So I don't know if there's one I like ex, um, necessarily. So you all go ahead, if uh, Steve. Please. I'm trying to remember too. Was the was the was him asking about would you would you be happy being a salesman? Is that one of the? That's the last one. That's, That's the best one. Marty asked Nigel, what would you do if you weren't playing rock and roll? He'd work at a haberdashery. <laughs> Maybe sell chapeaus. And what's so funny about how he does it is 
he, he's talking about being a salesman and then he essentially brings Marty into his improv. Right? Yeah. Would you, what size do you wear, sir? And then you answer me. Uh, seven and a quarter. I think we have that. And Marty is trying to get out of the improv. Right. See, that sort of thing, I think I could probably master up. Yeah. Do you think you'd be happy doing that? Well, I don't know. What, what, what are the hours? <laughs> <laughs> what, why? So, again, Michael Ross is our guest, as our expert. I will ask yes, you. Because he's gone through... This and this is again why Guffman. This is like the precursor to his character. I mean, in Guffman, right? Which is like the complexity of him understanding what the role of this salesman is, and that he so embodies it. Then it's just like yeah, the hours, you know, the, the hours are this left-handed question that has seriously nothing to do with the craft. That mm. then in that moment becomes the most important thing. I, it's just it's. It's so left field. And again, I have to imagine, as we see in those in the in the four hours, because right, we're seeing all the good stuff. The, these guys do this a lot, right? And so you get the bend and twist that happens in these things. And it's probably nine times out of ten where it doesn't work. But like the one the right. one time where it does, it, it it's gold. So uh, you know what just occurred to me is that we have the actor, Christopher Guest, and the director Rob Reiner. And the actor, Christopher Guest, is playing this character of Nigel. And he for and is improvising, and it, within the improv, he Nigel begins improvising as the salesperson. Yeah, yeah. And then he draws the director who is improvising as the interviewer at, into improvising as the character <laughs> the, who being sold to. And then Nigel has so fully immersed himself in the character of the salesperson yeah. that he's in entertaining the question of like, well, what are the hours? You know, the very honest question. Like, <laughs> consider this. Yeah. yeah. Um. So obviously, post for a movie like this is really difficult. They have a hundred hours of footage. You got to find the structure. You got to find this. We already talked about them recutting the concert scene so it's more like they you could see that they're playing their instruments. We mentioned the first cut is four and a half hours long, and you can see that. Here's the most interesting thing I saw in the post production process was Rob Reiner wanted the writing credit to go to the entire cast. Mm. because the entire cast mm. made up their lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. WGA was absolutely against it. And they said, we want to give the credit to Guest, McKean, and Sure. Those three went to the Writers Guild and said, we don't want the credit. We think it should be the whole cast. So the director, the producer, all the actors, the actual writers have all said to the Writers Guild, look, everybody made up their own lines. Yeah. They all deserve credit. The board of the Writers Guild of America, the 15 members of the board, took a vote and voted 15 to nothing to give the credit to Guest, McKean, and Harry Shearer, hmm. um, which is a bummer because, yeah. no, that, that's what this is. Yeah. Um, it was not a hit. It was no. like a few people kind of liked it. And this is where VHS really changes the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, because people and, – and people fell in love so much with this, as we talked many times – they gone on tour multiple times as Spinal Tap. Yeah. When they go on tour, if they go to do an interview at a at a radio station, you know, a morning radio show or something, they go as Spinal Tap, yeah, which yeah. apparently pisses people off because they're like, no, I want, I'm talking to Christopher Guest. I would yeah. like to ask Christopher Guest a question and they will not answer. Yeah. They will Brilliant. be those characters. Brilliant. 
Um, and also, and us, Steve, as you probably know too, the the folksmen who later will appear. Oh yeah, in Mighty Wind open for them, and half the time, people not knowing. Yeah, the that, that, that's... dudes that are opening right. for the band for the for the the, uh, yeah. the band that we came to uh. It's like just joke inside joke inside joke. I love it. Um. They did not own any to the rights of their songs, and they finally make a deal that basically they have a limited license. But something about the the deal that they have is if they don't play the songs publicly every two years, they will lose their license. So so that's part of what their tour schedule is about. And then, as you mentioned earlier, in 2016, Harry Shearer, Studio Canal, who owned the right, who had bought the rights from whoever had the rights before, because they've gotten like a dollar 19 or something it was from 81 dollars in merch and 98 dollars in music sales as of 1996 that's crazy that's so it he's yeah he sues them reiner uh mckean and guests join in on the suit yeah for 400 million dollars is what they sued them for wow. and they settled out of court so we don't know they got some i'm assuming yeah. they got a fair yeah. amount of money but i don't know what it was and as both of you mentioned they're working on a sequel yeah which boy, I would love it to be funny. I it will be. be even for your consideration, which a lot of people don't think is some of the best stuff, is still brilliantly hilarious to me. Having lived in LA, having lived in Hollywood, so like I can't. I've never seen him fail. I don't think with any of his uh, approaches, Christopher Guest. The the question is because he's directed the every, all the other ones afterwards, right? Will Rob Reiner come back to direct or just be the actor? No, that's say Rob Reiner's going to he'll because he, he plays the character again, going like he saw yeah. how bad the first one was, so he's trying to come back and like <laughs> oh, he, that he would be great. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, there, there's there's one more important thing though because you know mm. branding's a really important thing. Branding's branding's an important thing, and my my brand when I come on your, your shows, I like to get you guys gifts. John, unfortunately, you're in, you're in San Diego. I am. I was an idiot. I showed up to, to Steve's house today. Luckily, yeah. I did because I, I brought you guys your gift. He's going to have to give you half of it. One one part of it you guys aren't going to be able to share. Um, okay. Uh, so, Steve, you can open up the, 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 the square kind of heavy one first. I, I have uh, this in my hand. Wow, it is an actual wrapped gift. It's wrapped, yeah. For everyone else who's a guest on the show, this is the bar. It's imp- yeah. You know what, though, John? It's important. You know what I mean? It's just respectful. Yeah. That's no, it. I agree. I yeah. feel it's metal. There's something metal on the inside. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh. So, ladies and gentlemen, in the listening with your ears, yep. I'm going to hold do something for you. Oh, that is the sound of a Spinal Tap lunchbox. <laughs> That's awesome. In pristine condition. So, yeah. pristine. I found it on eBay. The guy goes... I threw in a few extra gifts. Open that thing up and see what. All right, I'm opening it up. Oh my god! We have a CD, uh, the the '60s, the NBC motion picture soundtrack CD. (laughs) Yes, of course. Why not? A VHS of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. No, it's not. He crossed it out. Oh, it's crossed out. Wait, hold on. What is in there? (laughs) The doors. (laughs) Yay! In a Fast Times at Ridgemont High case. Oh, the actual, so I can listen to the soundtrack and watch on VHS, the 60s. Oh, yeah. nice, nice. By the way, do either of you have a VHS player? Yes. I do, too. I do not. Oh, well, that's why you're not getting these, John. No, I was no, going to send them to you. Mind. And a second VHS of the 60s. So, I, yeah, no, they're oh, different episodes. Wow. Part one and part two. Yeah. Wow. This is uh, this is absolutely incredible. What a treasure. So, of course, he had to make sure that when he shipped it on uh, an eBay that the that the tin was kept uh, kept well. So, why don't you up on this next one? There's two of these in here. 
One is for John, one's for you. I do suggest you throw them away immediately after you open them, but if John wants his, he can have it. I'm wrapped it in. Okay, there's some form of fabric. Oh, okay. I've opened up. We have shirts. Shirts. Oh, my God. It's a keep trucking Casey Popcorn Festival. (laughs) But this is the guy. What's the name of this character? It's a famous, like, (laughs) yeah. 60s character it's not our crumb but it's like one of those guys yeah i wrote to him i said i said how'd you get all because there were four more of those shirts that came with it i was like how did you have access to all these shirts he goes i used to run it lol all right you found the world's most interesting ebay seller clearly buy more shit from him don't worry (laughs) that's wow uh michael ross you have outdone yourself yes uh uh, is he the only cinephiles guest who has brought us gifts? You brought us gifts every time you came on the show. Yeah, every time he's come on. Yes, I thought <laughs> brought us something when we did. He did. saw I brought something and it was stupid. Yeah, it, there we go. Yes, you but, yeah, I think the only ones. Yeah, no. <laughs> I will give. I'll give my final thoughts on on this first, which is that a I've never had so much fun watching uh, this as the last time, yeah. and I had even more fun talking about it. And and this is like I would say is the the real gift of this movie is quoting and talking about it and get, that's what makes it so much fun and and particularly now that I'm old and I've been through the pain the movie had a totally different experience you know when I was when I was eight, seventeen or something when I first saw it I had never sat through the awkward meeting or saw the project going downhill I had never done that I've done all that now and this was fantastic. Uh, John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, it's it's such a fun film. Here's the great things, and I've said this numerous times on the show. You know a film is a classic or good, and by the way, it was on TCM, and that is Turner Classic Movies. When you revisit it later in life, and it still works for you, and it works for you in a different way or a new way or an interesting way and retains the humor. It's still funny. The jokes still work. They still land. The timing of them all is still great. And you're watching so many incredible talented, incredibly talented people throughout this film just come on in and do quick scenes or a few scenes just to give the film even more humor, even more of a bite and an edge to it at the time. And I think the gift of the film is, although it's making fun, it's not making fun in a gleeful desire to destroy the thing it's making fun of, which is incredibly difficult to do when you're doing a mockumentary. I mean, mock is literally in the title of a mockumentary and mock, of course, meaning to make fun of in a negative way, possibly negative connotation. And that isn't the way you feel when you're watching this. You actually care for these characters. You sympathize with them. You understand them. You want them not to fall into the same traps. You wish they were a little more intelligent so they wouldn't get into these situations. But then you wouldn't have the movie if they had that. So that's the joy of this thing is you actually do care about all of the. They're not self-involved asshole rock stars. They are people who simply just wanted to keep maintaining success. And sadly... Uh, in the, the, they experienced the downfall of their um, uh, middling success, and then just an incredibly uh, perfect time, perfectly timed um, uh, last wave of their fame, which is fun to watch. So I think that's the gift of the movie for all the humor and the biting satire and the jokes at their expense. You actually do end up caring about these characters and enjoying the humor and enjoying the way that it ends. Michael Ross, I won't ask for your final thoughts because I'm sure that you'll have more thoughts on this movie for the rest of your life. But what are your current thoughts on this is Final Tap? 
I so it had been a, a couple of years since I had seen it. Uh and yeah, I John John nailed it for me, which is I was just so happy that it was even funnier mm-hmm. than I remembered it. I remember I had all the quotes, I had all the stuff. And Steve, I you know, take a little bit of what you guys both said, like being older. It hurts more, but it makes it that much more funny, which I, I just is awesome, which also leads me to like now. Now I feel like this is something I can share with a, you know, our our, our niece was here who's 22 and she's asking yeah. what it is. And I'm like, no, you know what? At Christmas, it won't just be Christmas vacation. It's going to be Spiral Tap too. <laughs> like, yeah. honestly, it's it, I feel like it's something I can honestly share and you don't have to necessarily like explain the origins and everything because it is so damn funny yeah just because you brought up christmas vacation i have one more thought i want to throw out which is that people don't fully appreciate that comedy is largely about pain yeah like that's it is it is miserable that's why we laugh that's why we have this whole system is to deal with pain you know and both christmas vacation and spinal tap it's so much pain so much and it's so funny. So that's what we think is Spinal Tap. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts, your favorite quotes, your favorite moment, your favorite songs, your favorite lyrics. We would love to hear all of that on our Facebook page. You can just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow us on Twitter at Cine underscore Files, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. If you haven't subscribed to the show, I think you should subscribe to the show. We're going to turn it up to 11 from now on. Whoa. So whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or Stitcher or Overcast or whatever your uh, podcast client is, please subscribe to the show if you happen to visit Apple Podcasts. We still need those reviews. I feel like the reviews have slowed down, and I don't think we've slowed down one list. Yeah. So we would yeah. love... Your reviews you can buy or stream. This is Spinal Tap, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And if you want to support the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where I think we already mentioned that we did a ridiculously intense conversation about AI just recently. So that's up on cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, it's uh, SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and Enterprise Incidents, where we're deep into the middle of the animated series. John, how would folks reach you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says. We got all kinds of stuff going on there as well. And my other podcasts, The Geek Buddies and The Hot Mike, which is currently burning up Hollywood with our scoops. Michael Ross, I totally needed this today. <laughs> this yeah. has been so much damn fun. I mean, guys, thank you for having me as always. It is an honor. Just one thing I wanted to plug, I will be uh, taking over as a guest host of Outlaw Nation all next week. <laughs> <laughs> Any fucking time you want, 100%. You want to you lose people and get your, get, your, get your fans more angry than they already are, John? I'm your guy. I love it. Um, I love it. Have you guys, so have you, because that's what they're doing, because probably why you made the joke, but they're doing that on the Daily Show since Trevor Noah left. Yeah. Is every oh, week's yes. been a different guest host. Oh, my God. I would love to see the run of guest hosts on Outlaw Nation. Oh, my <laughs> God. It would be fantastic. I love this idea. So, again, thank you for coming. This has been such a blast, and I think that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on The Cinephiles for another great film. 